This week on Invasion the Podcast, we continue on with our year of Carpenter with 1976 Assault on Precinct 13. Got a smoke? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a reasonable guy, but I've just experienced some very unreasonable things. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. It's the invasion of the podcast. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. Okay. Show me. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. The Year of Carpenter. Why don't we just wait here for a little while, see what happens. And welcome to Invasion of the Podcast, where we try to take over the world one listener at a time. Uh, My name is Paul, and somewhere out there slowly pushing a car towards me is Steve. Hello, everyone. I I don't know. I don't like. That was a weird image, right? Like, they're like, like, oh, they're pushing the cars. It's like, well, I kind of get it, but it's a weird image. But yeah, anyway, uh, uh, the, the cool stuff, right? I wasn't expecting that. And another thing, I wasn't expecting another thing in this movie. I saw all Precinct Thirteen. We'll get to that in a bit. So anyway, Steve, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for asking. I uh, I wanted to say I, I listened to last week's episode, uh, all nine hours of it. And, uh, uh, I am offended. People, I'll just, I'm offended, sir. You know, <laughs> I know that I'm not a great, <laughs> I know I sometimes have a lot of pregnant pauses in my speeches and in my speeches when I speak. And, uh, I have a lot of tendencies to spin my wheels. However, last week, uh, I think there was some audio issues cause there's some like, there's some good solid pieces where it's just like, uh, the bit in Wayne's world where, uh, you know, he's talking to the, uh, drive through. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. But I was like, Oh, okay. Well, well so, like, okay. You can't tell really though. Cause I, you know, I, I do that all the time naturally. So. Uh, so to be fair, uh, Skype was being a bit of a bastard last week. So it did cause some garble garbling here and there. Um, unbeknownst to you, uh, I did mark timestamps last week of like the big offenders and went through and clipped them. So if you think that was like frustrating, there, there was things like, and it's not like, you know, this is like behind the scenes. Right. But it was like, I knew that it was no fault of you, but it was Skype. So I went through and there was like, you know, seven, eight, nine bits here and there that were like that. Um, and I know if I was listening to a podcast that, um, you know, once or twice, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. We, we all, like a lot of people record, you know, um, you know, at home right uh, away from each other and they use like Skype and whatever else um but it you know if it's going to be consistent then you know I would tap out so I was doing my best to to um you know remove the potholes uh, as you as you were you know so you don't have anything to apologize for I was I was aware of it and and looking for the big offenders no, well, see, I was going to do a thing here where I was, you know, I was going to do a whole a montage, montage, a, mo- a whole running gag, if you will, about, uh, you know, broadcasting from the inside of a Wendy's. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I I decided to go to say, like, hey, that was 
that wasn't my normal craziness, uh, just talking the way that I do. Uh, it just happened to be that uh, there was some Skype trouble as well. Yeah, so. and it's like, it, just give yourself credit. It's a dramatic pause. You're, you're having people wait to hear, like, they're hanging on your very word, right? <laughs> like, that's what's going on. So, yeah, it happens. Like, um, I, you know, I was recording last night the other show that I do, Strange Highways, and for whatever reason, I was in the same room with my co-host, Terry, and his mic cable started fuzzing out. So we'd be talking, and then the cable would just stop working. So it sounded like suddenly Terry was, like, on the, like, the other side of my room talking to me. Like, it was real weird, and I'm just like, oh, this is a lot of fun. So don't feel bad, Steve. I, and Terry was sitting... <laughs> two feet from me <laughs> we're still having audio issues so i evidently i pissed off like a, a wing walker like you know uh from terror you know twenty thousand feet and there's there's something in the machine now well that's that's uh what do we do to to make it right i don't know um how do we i i'm i think i might have to say you know what i was gonna say i might sacrifice chicken however i kind of did um, so because you and your, your bountiful gifts you left at my house like two weeks ago, uh, one of the things you left at the house was that canned chicken that you won a, a couple years ago for losing the trivia contest that we published on the show. You left it with me. Uh, it has now been picked up by, um, uh, you know, the city of Cleveland. It's now on its way to uh, a trash, you know, trash heap somewhere. So I did sacrifice a chicken. I thought I thought it could just live at your place no, for a little while. Nope, no, 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 um, just no. Just like my like my wife was like, she's like, that's disgusting. I'm like, yeah, it's like a couple years old. She's like, no, it's just a chicken <laughs> in a can. So just the idea of it was disgusting enough for her. Not the idea that it's been, you know, you know, becoming you know carbonite or whatever was going on inside that can. Uh, so even though it's, it was, you know, Chuck Bronson approved with this face on it, I had to, I had to get rid of it. And also considering too, I explained last week that I was getting over food poisoning. Just even looking at that thing just made me feel uneasy. So I had to, I had to get that out of the house. So maybe, maybe I brought this is a curse. Maybe that's what's happened. Maybe, maybe I have to go and reclaim the Bronson chicken, uh, to ca cause all this to, to write itself. Oh, well, I mean, now that it's gone, I mean, hopefully that's it. I hope that's the cure. But yeah, uh, I'll, the I'll, stink of losing that game will forever follow me. Well, I'm sure we can have another trivia contest and come up with some other disgusting canned meat as a prize. You know, like um, I'm sure we'll get like a tin of spam or um, Vienna sausages or something, which I actually kind of don't mind both of those. But we'll figure out something, you know, it's like um, and then we'll 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 rig it to where you don't lose. That's what will happen. But oh. yeah. Okay. Anyway, there we so, go. So yeah, before we get, I don't in, have to win. You, don't, don't no, you just, just have to not. It's the Cleveland in us. As long as you don't come in last place, you're a winner. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so before we get into Assault on Precinct 13, uh, did, did you get anything into anything this weekend? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, so for whatever reason, I don't know. I, we always get these deals. I think it's through Verizon or something. Uh, maybe when we upgrade our plan long story short it was like we now get hulu uh disney plus and something else free i think and uh we had to cancel the you know our actual uh, kathy took care of it so i don't even know if she canceled it but long story short we're no longer paying for hulu and disney plus for a while so she was like well you know we're not paying for those uh if we uh want through hulu there's a five dollar a month uh, showtime subscription and i was like okay i'm like uh that that doesn't sound bad i'm like there that show uh yellow jackets is getting a lot of mm -hmm. buzz and i really i watched the trailer and i was like oh, i'd really like to check that out 
So we haven't gotten to Yellow Jackets yet, but what we did do was we watched the final, uh, I guess it's the return season of the final season of Dexter. Uh, the, the Basically the season that's like, hey, we're sorry about the way we ended the show. We like this better season. Um, it's uh, 10 episodes like uh, the other seasons were. Um, I would say... An enjoyable season of Dexter. I've heard people say that they felt it was too slow or there wasn't enough action. I was entertained by it. I thought it 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 felt like a season of Dexter. It didn't feel like they brought it back and you know, like the made major changes to the show. It felt literally like the next season of Dexter. Um, I don't know if the ending that they came up with here is going to be that much more satisfying to the people who are pissed about the ending they came up with uh, ten years ago now. Uh, so I, it was okay. Like I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't one of those people who, who rallied against the, uh, you know, the, the ending, like, Oh, you know, it's, it gave me polio. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was, I like that. That's now our yeah, mark. It was just, okay. that's, that's our benchmark now for something like, did it give us polio? No. Okay. So it probably wasn't that bad. <laughs> Like, okay, so Game of Thrones, you know, when that ended, you know, people acted like their lives were over, like it was, the you know, the worst thing they'd ever seen. And yeah, you know, the, the biggest problem with the last season is, is they compact it down into less episodes and they tried to resolve a lot of storylines in a shortened season. Like that's that's the biggest thing. And then you can have you can also say, yes, people didn't like what the actual ending is. But, you know, I was also like, yeah, you know, I take it or leave it. I wasn't like, I just wasted eight years of my life, you know. Uh, so I had a point here somewhere. Uh, well, so, like, and- like uh, I've never seen Dexter. Ever, like, from what everybody has said is that, like, the first three, four seasons are pretty solid and it gets a little, a little weird. But I know that, you know, he ends up going up north and becoming, like, you know, whatever, a bearded dude, right? And that's the whole thing now. He's, like, up in this, like, wintry town. Is it, is it going to be the thing like Archer where every season it just he ends up in a different like climate and location? I want to see like now he's like on a tropical island or like, you know, he's on the moon. Like I want to see, uh, you know, whatever. I, I don't think you're ever going to see him on the moon. Uh, well, that's an opportunity. But- you know, they're missing out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's three people in the moon. I, I give him and, and, credit for. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was just gonna say I give him credit for doing a season that uh, isn't because you know everything else was took place in Miami. So I'm glad that they didn't like you know what let's move it to a warmer climate or move it back to Miami or something like, along like those Dexter, lines. So Detroit, like I don't know. Uh, but yeah, if it was on the moon though, and like you know, I know he kills people sometimes, but it'd be like him and two other people, and then one of them would be the other killer, and one of them would be the victim. It'd be a very short season, you know. I know that. But um, so you so you thought this new season um, was okay? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it, and we burned through. I mean, it's ten episodes; they're an hour apiece, you know. So we burned through them over the weekend. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I. I I, again, I wasn't somebody who was jumping at the bit to, you know, shit on the the way the the, the show ended. That last season's not great, and it it is not very satisfying of an ending. But I don't know that this is this ending to this season was any more satisfying if you're looking at it as the end of the show again. So I don't know. I I, I enjoyed it. Uh, 
you know, Dexter was not a perfect show. Um, those early seasons are pretty damn great. Um, and I, I, even for its shortcomings, I liked later seasons of it. You know, um, I never felt like I was watching it out of habit or like, well, I started the sandwich. I guess I should finish it. So <laughs> you're I never felt. Are you comparing good. Dexter to Homer's sub? Is that what you're comparing it to? Like that big, yes. what was it? However long that sub was, is like, leave me be or whatever. Like, I got to keep eating it, you know? Uh, that was how I was with like the last five seasons of ER. Like, I was like, I've, I've been invested for 10 years. I've got to keep going. So, yeah. But Homer's sub is a good, uh, good analogy. <laughs> All right. So it sounds like that was mostly your weekend, right? Like nothing else you got into? Um, like no, uh, no. I mean, other than what we're going to be talking about next. Fair enough. All right. <clears throat> so I did something I normally don't do, uh, and it, I still can't believe I did it. Uh, and th- that sounds so taboo and like fascinating, but no, like uh, when we were recording last week and in the midst of the great Skype crunch, um, I, for whatever reason, I, I already explained like you know being ill with food poisoning and then having all the issues with that, like the house, all that stuff. Somewhere in the process of that that Friday or that Thursday Friday, I ended up like just banging the hell out of my right wrist. So my wrist was like, I could you know I couldn't really move my hand. It sucked, uh, you know. And so then uh, I ended up like I can't I can't play video games. I can't do anything. So I ended up uh, just watching TV. Like um, I ended up uh, watching uh, Letter Kenny, which I don't know if you're familiar with that at all or not. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen it in passing. Do you know what Letter Kenny is or no? I I've heard of it. I, I see a lot of people. Like, there are two shows that people seem to be uh, obsessed with that I know absolutely nothing about: Trailer Park Boys and Letterkenny. Well, are they both Canadian? They're both Canadian. Yeah. Um, I've never seen okay. the Trailer Park Boys, but um, so um, so also I just gotta say, in the process of my wrist healing, I ended up tweaking my back. So I'm like, cool. Now I can lift things, but I can't move. I I can't move. So it was like, I was just going from strength to strength of just dying over the course of the weekend. I don't know. It was so bad. I was just expecting, I was expecting like my left arm to fall off and just pop out a socket like an action figure at some point, you know, and just fall to the ground like TDK of uh, the Suicide Squad. But uh, no, I ended up watching. So each season is is either, it, they're either six or seven episodes and, you know, they're like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. There's 10 seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it all. So I, I got through all 10 seasons of letter Kenny over the course of Friday night through like Monday evening. So yeah. Um, wow. Sure. Like it's just, you know, it's just, I kind of had nothing else to do and it was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fun show. Um, it, it uh, how to describe it is, um, you know, it like, you know how people are like, it's kind of like this, but like this, it, that doesn't always do justice, but I would say it has the, um, like the weird small, uh, small town mentality of like a parks and rec where everybody's kind of weirdos and everybody's kind of okay with it. Uh, it has its own, like own dialogue. Like it's very, it's very specific and it's verbiage and it's language. And like, there's these like rhythms to the jokes and sometimes it becomes very much like just a series of wordplay. So it gets very kind of loopy at times where it's like kind of free form with some of the things that go on, but it's also one of the most vulgar things I've ever seen. Like they get disgusting with the things they talk about, but at the same time, it's like, Oh, these are just like, like, you know, um, just nice. Like, you know, 
uh, just nice small town people in Canada, but they say horrible things and talk. And like, um, there's a, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Like, but there's a heart to it, but it's like, it's vulgar and like the Kevin Smith kind of vulgar where you could have these conversations and they can kind of branch out and to get even weirder places. But like, they're very matter of fact, like you would get in a Kevin Smith film. Right. Um, so it has that, mm-hmm. uh, it, it has some like weird, like tinges of like Portlandia where these characters are all odd, but they probably wouldn't exist in real life, but you feel like you've probably met someone like this before. Like, and so, and also the, 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 the music they use in this is amazing. Like the, like there is some amazing pieces of music, like in terms of like licensed music that I just, I want to go look up. Like, I'm sure that someone has a, a, a running article of all the songs that are used because they do a good thing of like. Um, there's a, I, I know when you see some of these non-traditional sitcoms, like when they get to like more of a dramatic moment, like you'll hear a song and things kind of go in slow motion to see people live in their lives. They use that a lot in this, uh, it's a pretty good effect. So it's one of these things where a lot of it was really like, you know, pleasing to me. I wouldn't say it was like a laugh a minute for me, but there were definitely bits I was like, you know, just busting up over. Uh, I'm glad I'm caught up. I can't wait to see more. Um, and there's this, there's some, uh, bits of dialogue in there that just, you know, like it's going to be hard not to include it in my day to day life and then also not sound like a goddamn idiot. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been fun. Um, I don't know. I don't know if most people would dig it. Like, you know, your mileage may vary if you can't get behind the way the dialogue works, it's not going to change over the course of 10 seasons, you know? So there you go. So they say things like a boot a lot. You know, a- well, there's actually a section there where they, they, they make fun of how Americans think they say the word uh, about. There's a whole thing there. Um, no, it's a lot of like, uh, I I don't even know how to, to even to get into it. But uh, uh, one thing you'll appreciate, though, is that most of the time, most of the episodes, it's just them just sitting around drinking beer. And a lot of times it's like, hey, want to get hammered? And they just that's all they do is in the small town is just get get ripped. <laughs> And like, and the, and the beer of choice, there are something called puppers and it's these beers that have like a, like a golden retriever's face. So it's always like, that's like the beer. Like I, 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 I was like this close to pulling the trigger on getting a puppers t-shirt just cause it, it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of like the Elsinore thing. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. it's fun. And then it's like, you know, what, well, one of the, one of the comments I like is that when someone's like going off and being crazy, you'll hear them say like, uh, you've had too many sh- uh, sugar cereals, haven't you? Like, or whatever it is. Like, I like the idea <laughs> of accusing somebody of having too much sugar cereal. Like, I don't know. Um, so, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, it was what, cause I started watching, I got like four or five seasons in and I'm like, if I don't sit down and just smash this right now, I don't know. I'm going to come back to it. Right. So, and I, you know, clearly I was incapacitated because my body was falling apart. So I just went ahead and just kind of barreled, barreled down and did it, which I don't normally bench things like that, you know, in terms of like that amount. But, you know, glad I did. I can't wait for the next season. It's been fun. So, yeah, um, I just wanted to mention uh, I, I got into one other thing um, and I, I felt like we were edging out of this and yeah. I was like, oh, it just popped in my head. And I, I, I feel like it's apropos for this show and uh particularly i know it's something that you're watching uh but uh i don't know if i've extolled the virtues of to be enough on this uh this this program um to like has so much crazy stuff on it like every time i open to it's like did you know we have all these weird movies that you know you've never seen or heard of uh but also like all these documents like 
I don't know. I Tubi seems to like really have their stuff together. At least the stuff that they keep like recommending to me, I'm like, wow. I I'm always amazed at what's on Tubi. We'll put it that way. Okay. With with that in mind, uh, there was a uh, series called The Dark Side of the Ring, I believe. Oh yeah, like I've been talking about that. It's on Vice. Um, is there there's other like Did you watch Dark yes. Side of the Ring or no? So I watched the first episode, which was all about Miss Elizabeth and Macho Man Randy Savage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what I was expecting. I'm going to watch more. Let me just refer, you know, say that before this. But like, when you had talked about the episodes that you'd watched, like I was expecting it to get really like heavy and dark, and it's it's oh, heavy they, in a lot of ways. They but do, like, <laughs> and they, they do. They have yeah. some sad stories, but. You know, I was like, oh, that wasn't as like crazy as I was expecting it to get. Uh, but I watched I, I did watch one episode just because I was like, oh, I know Paul really enjoys this. I want to see what, you know, what it's about. And I realized there's a different episode or a different subject every episode. But uh, um, it was it was interesting to to dig into it. But I was like, oh, well, this isn't as is saucy as I thought it would be. And saucy may not be the best word. But yeah. Controversial might be a better. Word. Well, there's there's a two parter about Chris Benoit. Like <laughs> I'll just I'll just tell you that. But um, if you want to watch it without commercials, it's all on Hulu. All, all the seasons are on Hulu now. So oh, is it? Yeah, okay. yeah. So no, it's. I mean, I am a sucker for like documentary style storytelling. And they do a really, really good job with that. And the way that they had that production, like you, like you saw how they'll do reenactments, but it's always kind of like soft focus. So you don't really see, like they'll have people playing Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth. And it's, it's very much a reenactment. And you can see it's a reenactment, but stylistic, like it's something about it really sells it. And then the interviews they have, um, like there's, you know, I, I know I talk about wrestling a fair amount, well, on the show at times. And, you know, and again, that may not be your thing, you know, people listening, but you can't deny the power of like good storytelling and also knowing like a lot of the stuff is like stories that take place in like the seventies and eighties, early nineties and how, um, just like, um, how crazy and self-destructive things get, you know, like it is, um, it's hard to look away from, but it's really compelling, uh, television. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to checking out more. I'm going to have to, you know, uh, budget that time, though, for because Kathy would have no interest in watching it. So usually I've got to, you know, when I'm doing stuff in my office or whatever, I think that's going to be a show that I'm going to throw on that I can. I can also kind of keep doing what I'm doing and not have to pay like 100. It's not so intense. I'm like, I can't miss a second of the screen. I, I can kind of listen to it and, you know. Uh, do things while I'm I'm watching it as well. I think I'll so. say that after uh, after catching up on what I did, there was one about um oh uh, it was a Japanese deathmatch uh, style. Uh, I forget the name of the promotion, but uh, Mick Foley talks a lot about it, and it's like and then how he was over there doing some of that stuff. And you're like, yeah, I talked about meeting him, and it's like I like and I knew that he's he's taken some crazy bumps, right? Like, uh, but uh, like. The, what happened to him at the hell in the South, the undertaker where he threw him through that cage and he hit like, you know, the, the mat and almost died. That is almost uh, nothing compared to what he did over in Japan. And some of the stuff he did there was just crazy. And that like, I was just sitting beside the guy and being like, yeah, I didn't know that uh, you wrestled in um, uh, rings that were just actual barbed wire. And you did that because you like entertaining people. It gets weird. 
Yeah, uh, I I did not know that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I get that. You know, they have the steel cage match, and you know, you know, they have gimmicks and stuff like that. But I I don't know. Ugh, barbed wire matches just sound even more brutal. Oh yeah, I mean that and explosions and fire. Like there's just it is. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Dark Side of the Ring, uh, really compelling television. Uh, if you are looking to not feel good about yourself. That's what you should watch uh, and watch a lot of episodes in a row. Like I did, you know, I was just like, what's, what's a good way to spend a weekend? Just being depressed, watching wrestlers, like, you know, slowly destroy themselves. Good times. Four stars. Four stars. <laughs> um, All right. Well, I, I will, I will report back when I've watched more episodes, but it just popped in my head as uh, you were talking about uh, letter counting. So, yeah, um, no, I'm Probably excited that, that you want to like. I know, I know you like wrestling. I just know that you know it's one of those things that um, you're you have memories of like growing up and watching from like certain times. And I think something like Dark Side of the Ring will will serve you real well because like some of the storylines go through things that you knew or things that you were experiencing at the time. Um, but yeah, it just it just gives you a whole new like view of like you know of of the sport. You know, like or or the profession, I should say. So yeah, I can't wait to to hear more of your thoughts about it. That, that would be interesting. I'll let you know. I'll be checking it out <laughs> now that I know that it's on Hulu. I'll watch it there. Yeah, it's just I mean, I think like uh, to be in like Pluto TV and like IMDb.com where they have like it's like cool, this stuff's free, but it's like I um like I found out that IMDb.com TV, whatever you want to call it, they have every season of Night Court, and I got excited, but I'm like, oh yeah, there's ads. Like, and I love Night Court. I want to sit down and watch it, but I'm like, I get really frustrated sometimes. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm post ad, you know, uh, content, right? That's where I'm at. Like I, I just unsubbed for Peacock, even though I had the premium subscription, they were still putting commercials and shit, you know? And I'm like, come on, like, I'm giving you, yeah. I'm giving you my hard earned $5 or whatever. Can you take the ads out? That'd be great. Also, if your app worked better anyway, neither here nor there. Um, so yeah, that, that's what we did for the weekend. You watched a lot of Dexter. I watched a lot of letter Kenny. Uh, weirdly, we both watched a lot of men in flannel up North. So I don't know what that says about us and how our, our, um, you know, our lives aligned without knowing it. I think, I think that says something about us. I don't know what it does though. Uh, I think it says we're manly men. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. So. Um, all right, so yeah, let's just get into it. We're going to get into our discussion of uh, uh, with the year of Carpenter for 1976, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, before we get into that, um, let's hear this um, this trailer with uh, some some pretty cool music. Freeze! This is the police. Drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, Solo. the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You want to stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city. 
inside a police station. What does that mean? They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Precinct 13, cut off, isolated in the middle of a city as a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare. We got a war going on down here. We can't find the damn thing. A white-hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. All right. Um, I just like that that trailer ends with like fuzz. I don't know. It makes it sound more authentic. So, um, yeah, 1976 Saul Precinct 13. I, Steve, I know you like uh, keeping us honest by saying who did who was who. So did you want to roll through the cash real quick and then we'll get into it? I just want to say real quick here too. Uh, the tagline, a white hot night of hate. I don't know what it is about that. Like it, it <laughs> it's weird, but it's, it instantly says 70s to me, but also like it, I, it, in my brain, I'm like, that's a pretty good tagline. I'd watch that movie, which, I, of course, now I, I have. I think it's but... going to be the RNC uh, platform when they do the convention uh, for the next election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that should be their platform. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so, no, but it's a good, it's like one of those ones. It's like all right, so yeah, continue. Yeah, it's a it's a good tagline for sure. It is. Um, so, <laughs> uh, written and directed by John Carpenter. Uh, I I obviously I <laughs> as I say that I'm like, well, obviously we're doing the year of Carpenter. People already know that. So we have uh, we'll go down the line here, and uh, we've got Austin Stoker as Ethan Bishop. We've got Darwin Johnston as Napoleon Wilson. We've got Lori Zimmer as Lee. We have Martin West as Lawson. We have Tony Burton as Wells. Charles Cyphers as Starker. Nancy Kyes, or as she was known previously, Nancy Loomis, as Julie. Uh, and Peter Bruni as Ice Cream Man. Uh, was there anybody else in here that I missed that you wanted me to mention, sir? Um, actually, I just know that, um, oh, um, the young lady that um, was at, uh, the, the girl, um, was that Kim Richards? Is that who that was? Uh, the young lady that was, um, yeah, that was her. Because uh, she was escaped oh, to Witch Mountain from '75. Yeah. Well, no, just because it's important to point out that uh, she was in some like you know like decently known like wholesome Disney movies before this. So I just wanted to point well, that also, out. Well, yeah. also, I feel bad that I didn't, you know, because she's got a very important part, at least uh, in this movie. Uh, well, it's a short part, and I don't think I realized that her name was Kathy for some reason. Um, and maybe it's said, it, it may actually be said quite a bit in the movie, uh, in the movie, and I'm just not realizing it. So, Oh, the other one uh, to mention, too, would be, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I screwed myself. Go ahead. No, whatever. No, the other person of, of, of note in terms at least relate, relating to John Carpenter's castings is uh, Frank Doubleday. He's listed here as the White Warlord. We'll see him as the the weirdo right-hand man in Escape from New York. Um, again, he's the one that's like the, like the I don't know, the just the weirdo that's just running around like, um, it, um, 
if you see a picture of him from Escape from New York, you know who he is. But yeah, he's been he was another Carpenter stuff. So so yeah, that, that's your cast. Um, I want to mention that we've seen and talked about Austin Stoker previously in our year of the knockoff, talking about Abby. He was in that before this, and so it was great to see him again. Um, so I was excited because I, I think he's a I think he's a really good actor. Um, yeah, so so that's your that's your cast. Um, so then where I guess, I guess we're gonna we're gonna start this off with is that uh, I I did I did dust up on my knowledge a little bit because I just want to uh, send a, a thank you to the to the uh, to the Goro the Al Goro of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. I feel like it, I feel like we're always just piggybacking like you know that guy does that great show. I guess we call we got to call him out once an episode right like yeah, just whatever. At this point he's entitled he's, to ten percent. Uh... Yeah, he's entitled to ten percent of our profits, which is ten percent is zero, but he's entitled to it. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. He uh, he pointed me in the direction of a couple books about John Carpenter. Uh, one, and I'm going to use this from here on out for the rest of the year. It's Assault on the System, The Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter by Troy uh, Howarth. So thank you for the shout out. Um, this book's really good. Um, and I'm sorry, Steve, you're going to say something about uh, the Mr. Goro before I get into the book. Uh, I was just going to make a joke that like, you know, if, if he's, uh, you know, the Tonight Show where, uh, you know, uh, later tonight, you know, uh, or yeah. even uh, past that, we're, uh, we're like, we're know, like the infomercials that, that, uh, show yeah. that, uh, yeah, the, I was going to say the infomercials are that show that, uh, yeah, the guy from MTV's, uh, um, TRL. Used oh, to Carson Daly. Yeah. Yeah. We're that, but like, we're even past him. Like we're, we're like, whatever. If, if we were still part of like actual, like regular, like original broadcast television, we would be past, um, the national anthem and the Native American symbol after they go off the air. We'd be past that. That's where we're at. Like, like that we wouldn't even be on the air. Let's just put it that way. That's how confident. So essentially what you're saying is, is we're, we're the, the static, the static snow. Yeah. We screen. just, we just want to just, uh, um, torment Craig T Nelson and take kids from them. That's all we want to do. So, um, all right, so some some grounding here. Uh, we had talked about Dark Star. Um, one thing I, I, I want to point out, and I was not aware of this. I just I want to bring this to your attention and just to to people listening. We talked about Dan O'Bannon uh, and how he was very you know uh, part of Dark Star and how he, he and Carpenter were friends. I I was not aware that their friendship splintered pretty quickly after, and it never really ever healed again. So, um, when I was reading about Assault on Precinct 13, there was a whole section here about, um, how, uh, Bannon was getting, he was kind of jealous of Carpenter getting this film made. Like Abandon would never say it, but he was going around and basically saying that he stealth directed, um, uh, dark star and it became a whole thing. And, um, yeah, it just ended up kind of just like completely splintering. So not that not that I want to focus too much on it. It's just that we talked about like what what all came out of Dark Star, and I think there's a lot of important stuff there. It's just that it's also a bummer that Abandon went on to have you know his own career and be successful in his own right, but like just to know that like they like they might have been amicable, but they were never really friends again. And that that's kind of a heartbreaker. So um, it's kind of finding out like the Mythbusters aren't friends to me. 
You know, <laughs> like when I found out that like Jamie and Adam actually weren't really friends, I was like, that can't, no, no, <laughs> you know? So that's kind of how it felt like when I was reading about this. Cause there's a bits in this book that go into pretty great uh, detail about how that kind of fractured and splintered. So I thought that was unfortunate, but I, I think if we're getting into this, covering things chronologically, I think it's just worthy of note that that's kind of what happened there. Um, after, after dark star, uh, Carpenter was trying to, um, like just get work right. And just keep, keep moving forward. He ended up getting commissioned to write, um, a couple screenplays. One of them was called eyes that eventually got turned into the movie, the eyes of Laura Mars. However, the screenplay got taken away from him early on and it got like completely just butchered. And, um, the, he ended up getting like, um, his name, I think taken away from it. So I don't know if you've ever seen that film. I've heard of it, but even after the film was being made, they were running into issues with like plotting and someone called him up and was like, Hey, how do we deal with this? He's like, well, he's like, did you keep this in? They're like, no. And he's like, well, then none of that makes sense. And basically it was like, you screwed yourself. I'm not helping you, but he got paid to write it and whatever. So I think that was worthy of note. After that, uh, what I have here was written is, uh, while eyes may have uh, proved to be another frustrating experience for Carpenter, uh, he also wrote a spec script for John Wayne called Blood River that actually got picked up by John Wayne, but this was in like the last years of his life and it kind of just got stagnant and then John Wayne passed away and then the property is, it never, nothing went forward with it. So Carpenter was excited that he actually got to write a Western that John Wayne was interested in and it just never got made. So that's interesting. I'd like to read Ooh. that script. Um, which is kind of also interesting that Assault on Precinct 13 is, is was at heart of Western. And we'll get into that too more in a second as well. Um, so, you know, he, uh, you know, he got some money for those. Uh, and then um, uh, at 75, uh, Jay Stein Kaplan, whom Carpenter had befriended at USC and acted as a production assistant on Dark Star, they decided to continue working with Carpenter and they developed a plan to make two micro budget movies back to back. Carpenter uh, proceeded to hammer out a screenplay called the Anderson Alamo in a matter of eight days. And Kaplan joined forces with his friend, Joseph Kaufman to put together sufficient funds to produce the pic- produce the picture. When they presented, um, when they were presented with Carpenter's script, they quickly realized that doing back to back films wasn't going to work. So instead they decided to funnel everything into the Anderson Alamo, uh, which was um, the original title for assault on precinct 13. So, all, all told, Carpenter was given approximately $200,000 to make the uh, Anderson Alamo. Uh, I know that in some things they say it was about 100000 but you know, sometimes Hollywood money gets a little weird. Um, he made the decision early that the film would look and sound as slick as professional as possible. We'll talk about that more in regards to when we talk about the movie, but I want to point out this is important. Um, he wanted to fill it on Panavision. Um, and so, because there was other cheaper formats called Technoscope that would have been more cost-friendly, um, but he stuck to his guns, Panavision it would be. He also was insistent that the sound uh, would be of high quality as well. And where do I have it here? Uh, he wanted the post-production to be done at um, the MGM Color Labs and the Samuel uh, Goldwyn Sound, respectively. So he fought, even though this was going to be a low-budget film, he knew that he wanted it to look um, like it belonged alongside other major releases. And I think that says a lot about Carpenter because um, you, I don't know about you, um, but there's certain things that watching movies growing up, you're not, you're, you're, um, you're not aware of 
because clearly you're a kid watching a movie, but there's a certain look to movies that you just kind of become accustomed to. Um, and like, I'll give an example, like aliens, there is a, there's a slick sheen to that movie. That's like, that's how movies should look. Right. And I think Carpenter latched onto that and was like, movies need to look like movies. And you can tell the low budget ones, like, it's like, even if we're not critics and connoisseurs of like films, um, you can tell something doesn't pass the sniff test. And I think that he knew from the jump that if we're going to make this small movie, it needs to look as big as possible. And I think that's very important. So I, I, I don't know. Do you think that was also a reaction to the way that uh, dark star came out? Because I mean, there's certainly a low budget feel to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad looking low budget film, but it definitely has that. think that, his approach here was influenced by that. Yeah. Cause I mean, also, I mean, think about it. Like, um, like I'll give you another example. Like uh, look, look at the original evil dead. Like, I forget what that was shot on like 16 millimeter, I think. And then blown up. Like you can see that that movie, I mean, yeah, it looks fine for what it is, but it doesn't look like it doesn't have the same, um, she like shine to it. Like a, like a, a large studio film. Right. So I think, I think Carpenter was like, well, if we're going to do this, cause dark star, he even said, um, that he's like, you know, that's a film that we would shoot a scene and then build money up and come back to it months later and shoot another scene. So it was very inconsistent in how they got that thing made. And with this though, it's like, you know, I think he just knew that, um, it's kind of, it's one of those things where, um, if you can show me that you can do something professionally, then you belong. If you're going to just constantly cut corners, then why should I consider giving you money for another project? Because sure you got it done, but what makes me think that you can hang with the big boys that I I'm, I'm paraphrasing from what I was reading, but that's my thought process thinking about it for the movie. That certainly makes sense. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you said that it was a, you know, a, a conscious choice that, that Carpenter made early. And I think that, you know, and, and again, this is just me conjecturing, you know, uh, as an God, I almost called myself an artist. You are um, an art- God, God damn it, Steve. You are an artist. You've, I, uh, you, you put out I'm artwork. Just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm okay. kidding. I mean, I'm, I'm a fartist, but you're an artist. I get it. Yeah. Continue, please. <laughs> I'm kidding. But the, the point that I was going to say is, is that like, I, no matter what you do, you always want whatever you make next to be better. And I think that he probably had that in his, in his head, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to look back at, you know, something that you spent a lot of time working on that maybe didn't come out the way that you wanted it to. Well, okay. So, so can I put this to uh, you real quick? I just, um, I, I know I was kind of asked these questions, like catch you flat footed with your book, the science slasher that I know you self published with, with Ryan, right? But like, are you, do you guys strive to make it look like, like this book will like belong on a comic book rack next to, you know, an image title or whatever. Like, do you like, it isn't just like, well, we're going to do our best in this taupe. Like, no, like you guys, like your covers, like, like the, like it looks like, like, I mean, I'm not, this sounds like a backhanded compliment. This is not what I mean. This looks like a book that you would see sitting alongside other books. That has to be a conscious decision. You have to make that decision for your printing materials. Right. And then how you guys want to do your page layouts and your coloring and how are things done? Correct. Like you, you could have probably made these books for cheaper and they probably would have shown, shown it. I mean, unless I'm wrong about that. Uh, I mean, you know, there is, uh, 
you know, when we talk about the actual product itself, uh, you know, I, I tried to make it look, I like the look of old comic books and for, for good or for bad, I wanted it to have a, a feel like that. So, uh, I was trying to recreate, uh, well, that's not true because part of it is just me not knowing, you know, what I'm doing and figuring it out. But I was trying to have like a little bit of a sense of a modern color to it, but with, uh, with an well, old school feel, like something that was printed on newsprint that looks like, um, you know, it was a four color process. So well, that's a stylistic uh, choice, not a uh, economic choice, right? Like in terms of that decision, mm-hmm. that I guess that's what I'm saying is like, like your guys, your your covers are slick, like it looks like a professionally produced comic book. Like, and I'm not, I'm not saying it looks like because it is professionally produced because you guys, you know, are are putting out a comic book. Um, but do you, like, does that? is that kind of explain where I think that he was coming from where he's like, I want my movie to stand against the rest of these because for you and I both know, especially in like the mid seventies, there were there like Panavision is a widescreen format, right? And it's a much richer frame and you can see it in this movie. Um, we've watched a lot of, um, we've watched a lot of cheaper things, uh, especially in our year of the knockoff. And there was a lot of Italian movies that were shot on film, but they were less for formats and the color, you know, the coloring isn't great. Um, you know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't look the best. Sometimes it's just the sheer force of will that we like that. Like, you know, for goodness sakes, like star crash wasn't shot on high quality film, you know, like you could see the difference in terms of what's being presented. I, I, I think that's what he wanted was like, um, you know, if someone looks at this film, sure, they can see it is a lower budget film, but he wanted to show them like, this is still a film and not just a quick cash grab to move on to the next thing. I think that's the vibe I'm getting from this. Okay. Yeah. I just, you know, for me personally, I think I look at it as a, uh, you know, a, a chance to do the things that, you know, every time you start out and do something, you know, like every time we sit down to do an episode of this, you know, we want it to be better than the last, you know, or at, at the very least, you know, be something that we're happy to, you know, when we walk away from it. Um, I, I I just thought that maybe that was the way he was coming at it, uh, just simply because, you know, the movie didn't do very well. Um, and, you know, I don't know that it really helped either Bannon or Carpenter's career that much at that point. So oh, you're talking about Dark that, Star. That's all. Okay, I, I yeah, just, yeah. No, that's yes, fair. Talking, yeah. Talking about Dark Star still. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I was talking about the, the shift from that uh, to the film format for Assault on Precinct 13 being that this he made sure the money went into the look of it because he wanted, you know, you know, to show that like I can hang and I understand there's even a bit I was reading about how when they were looking at dailies and he had like a bed sheet up on a wall, like Carpenter just lost his mind. He's like, this looks like a movie. Like, you know, like that has to be very exciting <laughs> to be like, Holy shit, guys, this looks like a thing I would go see in the theater. That has to be exciting. Right. And that must, that has to be like that jolt of energy of like, I think we can do this. And I think that comes through in the movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, it, it looks like a movie, uh, for one thing, but when watching it, uh, and I, I, I don't think that, uh, I, I know that personally you feel like, uh, Romero isn't the most visually oriented director, but I got a lot of Romero watching this movie, at least the way it felt and looked in a lot of ways. So, 
Um, and oh, then sure. yeah. looking at the trivia I saw. I'm sorry? No, go. I, I was agreeing with you. Continue, please. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, no, I, I was just saying that, you know, I saw that, uh, you know, he, he, he used Night of the Living Dead as an example for uh, the, the gang. So I, I, and I, you know, it's on Wikipedia, so it's got to be true. Um, but uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a, a, a it's a, it's a good looking movie and I think it stands, you know, like, and again, Romero is a low budget filmmaker at that point, or I, I should say at that point, he's, he's got some money behind Dawn of the Dead, but he's an indie guy, I guess is maybe the better way of putting it. So, uh, yeah, I, well, I, I mean, think it looks, so can I, here, can I what put this it to is, you? It looks really good. Yeah. So um, there, there was something I was reading about, like talking about these films traveling, like, you know, festival circuit. Martin came out in 78. This was 76. Uh, and Romero, or uh, Martin was 77, whatever. Supposedly, whatever, like this was being like kind of shown as like, the, this is like this up and coming, like this lower budget film. Uh, Romero's like, well, I guess we're done now. Because he's like, he saw the look of this. And then you look at that compared to like Martin, you know, I think Romero was like, yeah, this, this guy's doing something that we're not doing. And Martin's an interesting film and I'm glad that we watched it and talked about it here on the show. Uh, but it's like, you can see, um, not the quality of the film in terms of the product being like the story that you're taking in, but I'm saying the prod, like the quality of the, like the actual visual film itself, there is a significant difference between like Martin and Assault Precinct 13. And I know you could say the budgets, I mean, I don't know what the budget for Martin was, but if this was 100000 to 200000 that can't be that far off, right? I mean, in terms of like what we know of films at that time. I think Martin cost $7 million. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was the most expensive film at that time. You're right. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's had a budget of 250000 supposedly. So, yeah. Supposedly, I, I just kind of just I'd wash it and say that let's just put them on equal footing. Um, there is something to be said for um, the 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 type of medium in which you, you choose to shoot on. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to knock Martin. I'm not trying to knock other things. But just this film, ha- it, it, like when I talk about something looking like a film, like there's something very filmic and very modern Hollywood at the time. And I think that. Um, gets people's attention for what is an exploitation film in a lot of ways. And I just want to, I mean, I don't want to keep going on and on about it, but there, there I mean, I like, I, I think it's of note that it's like, Hey, if, if we start with the right ingredients and know what we're doing, or at least like, as you said, trying to figure it out. Cause even um, uh, Carpenter was like, yeah, I, I didn't know some of this stuff. I think, um, I think there's something to be said there of like, because, um, how else do I describe this? Uh, you know, people be like, well, that that's pretty good for an independent short film, or that's pretty good for an independent whatever. Um, watching this, you probably wouldn't even know that it was an independent film in terms of like the way it, it looks, right? Like that's, um, at least that's my take. I, that's, I, that's, I mean, I don't really go on and on about it, but I wanted to at least bring that to your attention to get your thoughts about it. 
Another thing I wanted to, to bring uh, to your attention is something that we had talked about previously, and I think it's important to note, is that this is the time um, that Carpenter met Deborah Hill. She'd come on as a script uh, script girl, and this is when they met, and they got along, and you know they started working together, and eventually they became a thing, but they always had a good working relationship. I think it's very, very, very important to make sure that we note when she came into the picture and how that um, uh, how their their partnership would go on to, to shape his output and um, the movies that we love. Yeah. I didn't know that she'd actually had any involvement in this film. Um, yeah. She's, she's going to become incredibly important to not only Carpenter's in his life, but to his career. Um, and I think that, uh, um, you know, we're going to probably talk a lot about her next month with, uh, um, uh, we're doing Halloween next, correct? Yes. I'm not wrong on that. I don't want to say it and then say, okay. Uh, like we are going chronologically. So, uh, I think we're going to talk a lot about her when we get, get to that, uh, next month. But, uh, I, I was unaware that, uh, she was even, uh, involved with this. So shame on me. Well, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know how research. much she was involved in, I mean, in terms of like, you know, like she, came on as a script person, meaning I'm sure that was helping with like uh, continuity and making sure everybody was on you know, the same page, no pun intended, but I'm sure that, cause like they only had 20 days to shoot this thing. Right. So uh carpenter yeah. even joked, he's like, yeah, he bet he's like, he banged the script out in eight days. He's like, it was pretty fast. The joke he always makes is some would say too fast. So I don't know how much input she had on this, but I'm sure with this being kind of a, not a pressure cooker, but he, you know, he's talked about how when they were shooting Dark Star, like again, they would shoot one scene and then come back months later and shoot another scene. This was like he had 20 days to get it all done, and he had never actually had to schedule like a shoot before and actually be available. And so maybe that was one of those things where like she came in and saw him, you know, put in a new environment, and maybe that that kind of not that kind of opportunity. I, you know, who knows, right? Like, mm-hmm. um. I, I, there's nothing really that doesn't, there's nothing in the book that says anything about that, but it, it, you, it's easy to assume that uh, I'm sure that they were kindred spirits and in the process. Right. And they probably had a lot of great conversations that sparked other things too. Yeah. I mean, well, and again, I don't want to go too much into next month, but I mean, uh, one of the things fine, that, we'll talk that, about Halloween now, Steve, just go. It's fine. We're done. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, they've talked about, you know, is, uh, her influence not only uh, being the producer of the film and all the different roles that she kind of fills uh, making that movie, but uh, you know she was the one who who gave the girls in the film their voice. She was you know the one who you know working on that script with with Carpenter gave him a lot of that, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that real that that even though Lori is a little monkish, she still feels like a very much real character. Um, as do, uh, the other two girls, um, in the film. And, uh, I think that, you know, Carpenter, uh, I'm sure had probably the same, same ideas for those characters when he was writing them. Uh, but I think that really it was Deborah who gave them their voices and made them distinct, interesting characters in that film. Um, and it, it makes sense that she would, uh, have, you know, positions, uh, supervising scripts, uh, looks like, uh, cause I went to her IMDb and looked this up, uh, before, uh, or while you were talking, but it looks like she has two other script supervisor, uh, credits for, uh, before 
assault on precinct 13. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel bad now that I didn't know that, uh, that knowledge. Cause when we started before we started tonight, I was like, you know, I, I unfortunately didn't have much time to do any research this week. I, pretty much only can you know talk to the movie i watched the movie and that was that was it and well i mean i like I, to be a little bit more prepared so i feel <laughs> i did watch the assault on the other one through 12 films so i am caught up with what's going on no um so no it just almost it's not the same thing but it feels very very similar to um with alfred hitchcock that his wife alma she was there um, overseeing a lot of the script work as well, and that was like one of his big uh, creative partners for the bulk of his output. So, um, yeah, I think this is I think this is fascinating and interesting to dig into, and we need to give credit where credit is due. Um, other thing, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that when we get to Halloween and the fog and you know other things too. But um, what I also want to mention here too is that um, the the score for this, which I had never heard before, and I I think it's great. It's very I don't know. It's right. It's my jam. It's Carpenter. I dig it a lot. Um, he um, made it in three days <laughs> and he, and he talks about how um, there was the, the synthesizers back in the day, you had to tune them all physically and independently and how it was a way harder situation than it is now to make a score. But he did it because um, one, uh, it saves money, which, cause he did the scoring for dark star as well. And two, it's like, you know, like he just knew how to do it. Cause he, I was reading in, in, in the book too. He uh, comes from a family like, his father was like a professor of music and he comes from a very like liberal arts and music based background. So he was always steeped in music. So to find out that he ripped this off in like three days and was like, I can do that. And it turns out like the score, like um, we talked last week briefly about the super bro party and about how to, like you mentioned the film dangerous men, um, and uh, that does not belong in the same conversation with anything we're talking about tonight, but there's a, there's I'm like, where, where are we going? The music in that there's that keyboard riff that plays through the entire movie that, you know, <laughs> da -da 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 -da. it's like after what's funny, but after a while, you're like, can, can we pick something else? The, the, the score of this is repetitive, but it doesn't overstay its welcome. And it works really well. Like I, um, I, I dig the score in this and we'll, I, I think we'll talk more about that later, but this feels like it's like, this is, I mean, as much as dark star had, um, you know, Carpenter's fingerprints all over it in a lot of ways in terms of like directing and, and the music, this feels like that, that, um, this is the mold we would get when it comes to a Carpenter production of like, yeah, I'm going to write this. I'm going to direct it. In this case, he was the editor too. He gave himself a pseudonym of John T. Chance as the editor, which is the name of um, uh, John Wayne's character from uh, Rio Bravo, because Rio Bravo is one of his favorite films, and he wanted to kind of nod towards this being inspired by that. More on that in a second. Uh, but yeah, then him doing the music too. So this feels like, you know, like this is the promise of things to come. And I was really, I, I, I dug the score for this as well. Yeah, Carpenter's such an interesting guy. Uh, you know, I, while you were talking, I was, I was, I couldn't help but think about, you know, I, it's one thing to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm good at this, but I'm also good at this, and you know, have those two things work so, so perfectly well together, and, and you know, serve you not only as a filmmaker but as a musician. Like that's. It's crazy to me. Like I, you, I sometimes just want to be like, you don't get to be that talented. I'm sorry. Like uh, <laughs> a lot of us here are, are just trying to to do our thing. You don't get to be great at two things. Uh, you know, I think uh, when I think of Carpenter, you know, I, I think of uh, the, the score, obviously, and the directing and the writing. 
but it's 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 interesting. Like I can't, I don't want to say like, oh, who's the modern day John Carpenter? Because John Carpenter a still alive, and you know he hasn't made a movie in the last I think ten years, but he's he's still around and he's producing, uh, you know, the, the new Halloweens and whatnot, uh, and doing the score for those. Uh, but I I can't help but think like Robert Rodriguez is who you got to point to, right? Oh yeah, like yeah, that's a good call. It, if you have to pick a, you know, a guy who's in that same vein where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I uh, I do music for my movies. I, I write and direct my movies and I, uh, I, I, I do, you know, I do I, uh, specials on uh, Sin City DVDs or showing people how to cook food. Like, he just, I don't know if you <laughs> like, there was a thing he did for his, yeah. his crew called Sin City Tacos that we've made a couple of times and they're amazing. Because, like, like, brief aside, Robert Rodriguez said there's two things you need to learn how to be good at in life, uh, food and effing. That's the two things he said. Yeah. He's like, you, you can learn how to do it. Like, so <laughs> that's a good call. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where I will well, turn it back to Carberry. I just, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful that, you know, he's, he's that good at those things, but sometimes it's just like, wow, like you can't be, you can't be this good at all these things. So, um, I don't know. I, I just think that, uh, you know, and we can talk about the score too. I think that, because I, I, I was going to start going off topic there, so I'm reeling myself back in. You know, with the score, I think, and and I don't know that it necessarily is the same with this as it is. You know, one of the things that you know Carpenter's always said about Halloween is that the movie didn't work until he put the score to it. You know, I I don't know that this movie works as well without its score. I don't know if it's to the effect that Halloween doesn't, because that movie is so much of its score is. You know, it's it's such a piece of it, um, and it's iconic. So I don't know that I can say that about this, but you know, I, I what would this movie be more? You know, if this movie was more, um, I don't know, pre-selected songs. You know, well, or like, like the, although the you know, traditional maybe, maybe traditional would also yeah. be yeah. Like the, like the traditional or, no the traditional orchestration you know like the typical atypical Hollywood score. Yeah, you're right. I think it would be yeah. a different feel. I agree with you. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting that he he not only able to, you know, make these movies, but do the soundtracks and then have them, you know, become iconic and, and pieces of them. And I, I do like this soundtrack. I, uh, I, I don't have every Carpenter soundtrack, but this is one I think that I'm going to now purchase uh, so that I can listen to it uh, on, the, on the regular if you. Well, okay, so um, uh, here, here's, a, here's a spoiler for you, Steve. This is going to blow your mind uh, that uh, oh, God. we get to – no, you're going to dig this. Um, and I hope everybody else listening, when we get to this end of the episode, there's, there's going to be a delight. Uh, so when this was released overseas, and we talk about the success of that a little bit later too, how it kind of you know did much better over there than here, um, the end of the movie that we know is just the score again that we've heard. Uh, someone that was doing overseas distribution decided they were going to actually make a, um, a song for the end of the movie to put on the end to kind of like advertise like a, like a single to go along with it. And they used Carpenter's music for the single. Um, and it's, um, it's a track it's called, uh, you can't fight it is the name of the song. And, um, it's actually really catchy and it, you're going to hear it at the end. Like I normally when you hear that kind of like unauthorized usage or something, you're like, well, that's going to be kind of garbage. I'm like, nope, I've had this thing on a loop since I found it. So I cannot wait to play it for you at the end that there's actually like a, a kind of like, because of the synth, they, they label this as kind of a disco track. 
you'll you'll hear it. It's actually quite good. <laughs> like it's a carpenter wasn't a fan of it, but I'm like, how could you not be? It's pretty great. So that's that's everybody keep keep hanging around. Um, it's actually pretty awesome. So I can't wait to to play that for everybody. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to it. Usually, I I get up and go to the, the little boys room and, uh, and just play the music. You're like, Paul, just stop talking. Just play the song, whatever. It's fine. Get out here, whatever. Now, so all right, I guess we've gone this long talking about the like going into this, what it was, uh, you know, and how it looks and how it sounds and who was involved. Um, we haven't even really gotten to what the story is of this film, right? And I think um, here I'm, I'm you know, I, as you point out before we start recording this film, is you know, you know, like almost fifty years old. Uh, but I, I, I want to do one of these here because do you know why they are called spoilers? Because there's bits of this film I didn't know were in there, and if you've not seen this film, much like I, I had not, uh, because I'm a bad fan, as much as Carpenter has been very influential the things that I adore in my life. I don't know why I had never gotten to this film until now, but there's bits in this film that nobody ruined for me. And I don't want to ruin it for anybody else. Like I can, I, can we agree on that, Steve? Like there's bits in this that I did not see coming that I have not heard anybody ever talk about. Uh, that's yeah. I, I think that that's absolutely fair. And uh, you know, you called yourself a bad fan. I guess I'm just as bad of a fan this is so that you know we can we can make good on those errors and, and correct the or correct those errors i i i had not seen this before you did you did i had not seen this before either just like you did uh, i i came into this with absolutely no knowledge um and you know one of the it, it's a spoiler so it's, i don't know how we're going to talk about it and not because it, it's it's one of the things that sets off part of the story i don't know how we get away from not talking about that one spoiler in the sense of yeah i agree uh, um, that involves ice cream we'll put it that way. <laughs> i just well, i just i don't know how we dance around no, no, we, we'll get to it we'll get to it in a moment um i just find it funny that like i think i talked about this before that like halloween is like one of your like foundational films and and the thing is like one of mine and i'm not I'm not dismissing your love of the thing and my love of Halloween, but like they just kind of, you know, it's just one of it's like, we love Carpenter. Have you seen all these movies? Wait, he has other movies. Like, that's you know, what it feels like sometimes, you know? Um, so, you know, I, and that's why I think this has been, this is going to be a fun year uh, in terms of this. So, yeah. So no, the, the premise of this film, um, it is, it's a couple of different story threads um, here. I'll just, I guess I'll just run through. Um, we'll just get to the like the basics of it. Uh, so it starts off with um, you see members of a gang. I think they're called Street Thunder, which is a great name for a gang. Or um, I don't know. Uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's a great name for a gang. I'd I love it. They're being gunned down. That's gonna like, be my stripper name. Yeah, Street Thunder, right? <laughs> yeah, my stripper name is Meat Tornado. So we could uh, we could double up. It'd be great. Um, so. <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, we see like these members of street, street thunder just getting gunned down pretty much in cold blood by the police that kicks off. We find out the members of street thunder are actually, um, a very forward thinking, uh, multiracial group of people. Um, you know, uh, like that, I mean, not that, I, not that I was expecting like stereotypes and Carpenter made it a point to avoid them, but we get, um, you know, four different, uh, walks of life, uh, four different ethnicities that they're together as, um, you know, street thunder. And they, uh, they, they swear a blood oath, right. To, um, to punish the police. So that's one part of it. Then we also run into, um, 
the other thread that we get here is uh, Austin Stoker's character is Lieutenant Ethan Bishop. It's his first day as a lieutenant on the job. Um, he's and he's seeking like you know like something to do, and they send him to precinct. Um, was it precinct nine, division thirteen? I think whatever it is. the The title of the movie doesn't match where the, the actual place is. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> he gets sent to a police station that is being shut down because they've, they, it's no longer functional and they're moving it on. They're moving to someplace else. So he's, he's basically there just to make sure that the lights stay on until 10 30 in the morning. And that if anybody has to, happens to wander and he's there for assistance. The other thread too, then is that we, we meet, um, uh, Napoleon Wilson, which can, can we also just talk about, uh, Carpenter's penchant for naming people like, that's a, that's a great name. And I know it's a joke through the whole movie of like, how did you get that name? Like, like, um, we think of Napoleon Wilson. We think of snake Plissken. We think of, um, oh shit. What's, what's uh, his name from, um, uh, big trouble, little China. Um, uh, the, the Kurt Russell's character's name in that. Uh, but we, and we ended up getting, um, you know, we get like uh, Cuervo Jones and escape from LA. We get all these, uh, you know, Carpenter has some fun with names. I will give, I'll give him that. Uh, but we have Napoleon Wilson who is uh, convicted to go to death row. He is on a bus transport with two other guys. And um, so as they're going out, one of the guys is sick and they, um, the guy who is, what's his name? Staker, who is the, um, the police officer in charge of Starker who's watching uh, Napoleon. He makes the call to get uh, medical attention for the sick guy. So they end up at this closing police station. Uh, in addition to, we have another gentleman who is, um, oh, what's his name? The, the father, uh, uh, he, there's a dad who is driving with his daughter to try to go convince, um, their, the grandmother to move out of this, uh, uh, dangerous section of, of California and they're end up in a bad part of town. And in the process, um, as he's trying to get directions, uh, there's an ice cream truck nearby that we find out is being harassed by, um, the, the, the leaders of the street thunder gang who, for whatever reason, they're going to randomly choose violence and they want to attack an ice cream truck. So that's part of it. Steve, tell me what happens at the ice cream truck and then we'll, well, everything's going to come together in a minute in terms of the story threads. I know you want to talk about this part cause it's so ridiculous. I do have things to say about this scene. Um, first we'll just say, you know, of the things that I thought were going to be instigating events in this film, uh, the little girl getting ice cream was not one that I thought was going to be. I, I don't know if this was, you know, I don't know if it's technically a big spoiler or not, because there are other things that happen in the, the course of the film. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I was so caught off guard by what happens to the little girl at the ice cream stand um, that I was like, whoa, this movie is not what I thought it was. Uh and I guess I could just say, you know, it, it, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to play it. Sorry. I know. I know. I um, played it earlier. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. So, yeah. A little girl is, is shot by one of the members of the, or warlords, if you will, of Street Thunder. Um, and she shot, like, in a way that makes you go, it just happened? Like, it, it, it's so... <laughs> It's so sudden. You're like, holy shit. Thought even given. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause like she gets her ice and, cream. And the context yeah. is basically that like, no, continue please. Yeah, no, she's, she's got her ice cream cone, but she realizes it's, it's the wrong type of vanilla is that is. 
Yeah, it's it's vanilla, not vanilla twist. Back. Yeah. It's vanilla. I like vanilla. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was just like, wow. Uh, I did not see the little girl going back. Like, I thought that they were going to, like, just kill the ice cream driver in front of her and she would be a witness and then the, the dad would have to whisk her away. No, nothing <laughs> like it's, it's literally. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's it's some uh, Death Wish three level like sudden violence and, and Death Wish wouldn't come it, out. It's, yeah, it's it would, yeah. Ugh. Continue, please. It's just it is so sudden and so like so matter of fact that when I was watching this, I was like, "What? Oh no!" <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. It, yeah. it is about the equivalent of Bronson's wife getting put in the face and thrown and floating uh, in Death Wish Three. It is on, on that pretty. Pretty close to that uh, uh, that level, but uh, it just it comes out of it's not that it comes out of nowhere because the seeds obviously being established that the, the ice cream truck in an area he doesn't want to be. Uh, he tells the little girl first that he's he's you know uh, closed, and then she's like, "But I want ice cream." He's like, "Fine, I'll sell you some ice cream." Uh, and then you know after she gets her ice cream and leaves, things start going awry with the ice cream driver, but like. When she goes back, I really thought that it was going to be she witnesses something or she sees something about the men who killed the ice cream man. Nope. It's just she starts to complain about her ice cream and the guy shoots her like he's not even look at her. I think I don't think it's like, no. a you know, a, a, a Boba Fett type move where he's like, yeah, hey, I don't even have to look at my target. And I'm shooting him. I, I, it's just like, whoa. And you don't see that a lot of times in movies. Not only that, it's a it, it's it's not funny in the sense of. You know, the the tragic, you know, school shootings that have been happening uh, in the last 20 years. But uh, it's one of those things where, like, you don't typically see children being just shot point blank in the, the chest by a gun with, uh, you know, a, a silencer on it. And, uh, and and a little bit of behind the scenes info here, guys. Uh, um, you know, I'm trying to do just a little, like, piece for our social media or the, the, the image that we use when we post, a, yeah. uh, our podcast art, Even, our yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yes. Our podcast art. Um, and I, I, I chose the ice cream cone for this episode just cause I'm like, I don't know that there's anything more important to this film, at least from my point of view in the sense of like, I did not think this is where we were going territory uh, than that. So, so Steve just chose violence. Uh, That's what we need to understand. He just chose violence. No, um, no, it's like, it, it, like, so even Carpenter even said that like, uh, you know, it was outrageous for the time. And he was like, and he make like, he was doing commentary. I got through, I, I got about halfway through the commentary cause it was released in 2002, uh, before the episode, uh, tonight. And he talked about how like that, something like that was outrageous. Then he's like, you know, basically he was implying like not so much now, like, and that was 2002. Wow. You're like, you're like, oh, I hate that he's right. You know, and um, and also too, uh, I should say now that um, part of the trivia, and this is true because he's confirmed it. Whenever they submitted this to the MPAA, they're like, "We're going to give you an X rating because of this this killing of this girl." And so then he went to the distributor. He's like, "Hey, uh, what do you want to do?" And he's like, "Yeah, just give them a cut with that not in there, and then um, we'll just release the film anyway." 
<laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so they submitted it to the MPAA with that cutout and they got an R rating and they went ahead and just sit the rank of their cutout and like no one knows because it was such a like a low budget like movie. <laughs> wow. That's, that's amazing. Awesome. It's amazing, right? Um that's on the level of um, whatever um, uh, was it uh, Trey Parker or Matt Stone was making uh, Team America, and they knew that they were going to get a bunch of cuts from the MPAA, so they purposely went completely over the top with everything. So when they got notes from the MPAA, they're like, "Okay, we'll cut this," which is stuff they were planning on cutting anyway. <laughs> Like it was one of those things like they already knew the audience of like, oh yeah, yeah, you're not going to like this. We're just going to include it. So you, you think you're doing your job. <laughs> so yeah, the little girl well, it's, was, it's funny. Yeah. Go ahead, please. No, it's funny that you say that. I think that the Simpsons actually did that, not with the movie, but with, uh, the series, like to, to get away, they'd start building things into the shows just because they're like, you know, Oh, we know that it's going to get cut, but there's a joke we like better here. Um, you know, I, I maybe I'm misremembering that it's The Simpsons, but I, I'm almost no, positive right. it was. Yeah, there's probably certain things of like, well, we know what's going to be the red meat for them. And if they're focusing on that, then we're going to get a lot more stuff by. I think that's fair. So, so yeah, so we get that moment there where the girl gets gunned down, which I want to point out again, we talked about the actress who played the part and who was actually quite good. I was like, she was so good in the part that I thought she was going to be a main character. So there's a little bit of that psycho kind of misdirect with her, mm-hmm. um, with Kim Richards as Kathy. Cause she's like at the time, kid actors are hit or miss and she's quite good. And she's actually, you know, she delivers the lines. Well, she has a little bit of charm to her. So you're like, Oh, maybe she's going to be kind of an anchor in this movie. Right? Nah, she's out. She's like, I'm out. I, I chose, I chose poorly with my ice cream or, or I should say the ice cream guy who was, uh, under duress with a loaded gun in his ice cream truck, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, she had been a couple of Disney films that before that, like, uh, escaped to witch mountain and things. So she was like seen as like this wholesome, good character and, um, you know, getting gunned down. And, and then Carpenter was saying that what happened with, um, what they did was they put, a, um, they put a squib in the ice cream cone that blew blood at her. So when they did the shot, the, the, the ice cream cone would just shoot the blood at her. And they, he said the first take, you know, she wasn't sure how it was going to go. But then um, they tried it again, and she had a lot of fun with it. So he's like, yeah, he's like, she was a delight, and she had a lot of fun <laughs> being shot. Like, I think that's amazing, too. So what happens is the father sees this. He grabs the gun from the ice cream truck because the ice cream man's like, there's a gun, you know, in my truck. And then he chases down um uh, the, um, the street thunder warlords and he ends up uh, shooting the one guy, which that, that sequence is a little awkward or whatever, but the other three are still alive. And he, and so he's in a state of shock and he runs away and he ends up in the police station. So we ha- here's, here's where we're at now is that we have the bus full of, uh, you know, the, the three guys that were going to go to this other prison. Uh, we have Napoleon who's on death row. Uh, we also have, um, we should also mention, um, Oh, what's his name? I'm sorry. Uh, it is uh, Tony Burton as well who's also in there as well. Uh, so like who's important cause he, he's there for a bit too, which we love Tony Burton because he was in the Rocky movies. He's one of the ringmen for, um, Apollo and we, and I think he's great. Um, so we have them there being held in this, 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 uh, jail cell in a, in a precinct, uh, house that is closing. Um, so like the first 45 minutes of this film is very slow purposely so 
but I like, I, I, what I will say too, is that, um, and maybe in the remake, cause I know that came out a few years ago, Florence Fishburne, Ethan, Ethan, um, um, Hawk, right. That see that, mm-hmm. um, I kind of like that the confluence of everything here isn't all connected. Cause that feels more like real life, right? Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like Napoleon, uh, purposely made the one guy get sick so he could like be let go and put in this abandoned uh, precinct, right? It just happened to be, he was there. He was part of the circumstances, right? Um, we have Bishop. It was his first night out. He happened to be given a shit job. It was the circumstances of what happened there. And then we have the father running to this, this police station, um, because of what had happened. And then, you know, the street thunder followed him. And it was like, I kind of like, and it just feels like, um, it feels like real life where it's like people always try to find meaning in something and there really wasn't, you know, it's just, this is, it's just a bunch of shit went sideways and we, and, and even the main characters like Bishop and Lee and, um, Julie, uh, and Wells and Napoleon, they never, ever, ever know why it happened the way it did other than they have to deal with it. That's kind of refreshing. I like that. I'll say, uh, when it comes to the father, my first instinct was he was at a phone booth. Uh, he, he could have ran back to the phone booth and called for help. Maybe. Well, he could have also gotten his own car and drove away. I know that we're just supposed to like, he, he took a shot at that guy and then he ran away from uh, his own car. He could have gotten I, his car and drove away. That's my thought. Anyway, either here or there. <laughs> I, I thought he might've, you know, called for help for his daughter, but, uh, you know, I guess cold hard vengeance was on his mind as, you know, things went white hot for him. Uh, in, in a knife. <laughs> he had a death wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't the first thought that I thought that I had. I was like, you know, you're near a payphone. Call somebody to help your daughter. Uh, but that that's just me. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, it's interesting that. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I was agreeing with you. Continue, please. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's an interesting confluence of events, you know, that you were talking about, and uh, the idea that you know, it's an idea that it, that it, Die Hard is entirely built on, you know, uh, and in a, in a weird way, so is Clerks. You know, I'm not even supposed to be here. You know, like <laughs> the, this person isn't supposed to be in this set of circumstances normally. So, uh, you know, I think that. Uh, uh, the way it all pans out, you know, and it, it is funny because he never really makes a joke about it. Like, you know, like, oh, this is the worst detail I've ever had or something along those lines. Like, he's just matter of fact, just trying to take care, charge of, of the situation. And he's just trying to take care of things. And it's funny, too, because uh, he, oh, and we've seen it in, in previous movies where, you know, the prisoner becomes the uh, protagonist, not even so much the protagonist, but is like, oh, do I trust this guy? Do I not trust this guy? He's. You know, or whatever. I mean, they made an entire film about it, uh, Con Air, at one point, uh, where it's, you know, yeah. your, your entire crew of protagonists are guys who shouldn't be protagonists. Um, and I think we kind of saw a lot of that in the 70s, and I, I unfortunately can't uh, point to anything off the top of Well, there was a lot of, uh, it, it, particularly in the 70s, there was a lot of gray area, and it didn't just revolve around. You know, if that person was a you know a criminal or not, there was a lot of gray area played with, uh, you know, 
in a lot of different ways with the characters that in stories that were being made from like you know, say the late sixties, early into the like mid to late seventies. Well, no, I think that's, I think it's fair. You're mentioning that. So there's a lot of, cause this was post Watergate. There was a lot of like, not trust of like, you know, the government and like the powers that be also, there was a lot of, um, <laughs> there was a lot of collapse of, um, like inner city, like meaning that like there was the whole white flight thing and there was a lot of like poverty and crime rolling in and, you know, the, the rah, rah days of the fifties and everything was like collapsing, right? Like New York was, you know, having their problems as well. Like it just, this was kind of a time where it was like a downturn, right? So, so meaning that like, you know, you're not going to trust everybody like, and, and that's, a, that's a theme that runs through a lot of carpenter stuff that he doesn't trust authority. And even speaking to the father, whenever he's trying to get directions, uh, the, the, the daughter, Kathy's like, let's talk to the police. He's like, nah, I don't know about that. There is. There is that, right? So I think that runs through this. So I think um, that even when we see Napoleon um, being transferred to the bus, there's the one oh. asshole. Sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to no, no, interrupt. Yeah, no, I, please, I was, please. No, gonna... Interrupt me, please, Steve. You're, you're Welcome to the show. You're my co-host. Interrupt, please. Well, now that I've, I've, I've interrupted and uh, we've, we've gone to this length, I've, I've forgotten now what I was going to say. <laughs> No, but there's even the bit where like the one guy doing the handoff, right, with Napoleon, where he's like, "Oh, he just fell out of his chair," and then Napoleon was like, "You know, he uses his chains to like to, to tie that guy up and drop him." He's like, "He just can't stand up so good anymore." Like, there's a lot of that uh, with Straker trying to figure out Napoleon's position. There's there is that like you talk about that gray area. I think that I think that's very important. I also want to point out here. I was thinking about this before we started uh, recording. Uh, I just want to kind of give like some ideas of other films that were coming out around this time in terms of like this disenfranchisement of like um like law enforcement but also like sometimes the bad guys can be heroes like the anti-hero type of thing too um i want to throw out here um and it's a film i know you've not seen but from it was from 69 it was sam peck and pause the wild bunch that that's one that makes me think of this and how like these guys were criminals, but they had their own code of honor and things were changing i want to point that out uh death wish came out in 74 um the Warriors uh, came out in 79, so it came out after this. Um, and, like, there's a lot here that you're like, oh, shit. Like, this, there's there's a lot that's running through this. And this film is kind of of that time. And um, having especially, like, a main character, like um, like Bishop, who is an honorable man that's just trying to get through I think is um I think it's very important because it still shows that like the system has failed because there was that um you know the assault in the beginning that just killed those gang members when it was like hey stop running and they just shot them all because the police were just like you know whatever they were doing it's never quite explained like why they justified what they did um like you know it's like there's there's a lot in here that I, I really really think is really interesting and i think it's of the time and i think uh, unfortunately it still exists like it, it permeates now right but I, I i like that um like that bishop is um he's not compromised um morally through the movie right like but he's challenged and he changes his opinion about some people but his position's always here's the law and i need to protect people i dig that um, I also dig that like Napoleon who is going to death row for killing a number of people also has his own code where it's like basically like you do right by me. And also you don't run away from a fight. 
Like that feels very intrinsic to what we know about Carpenter of like, you know what? Like it's, it's like, like I think he was already kicking around ideas for escape from New York around the time for this film, but Napoleon Wilson is um, an early draft of snake Plissken in a lot of ways, you know, sorry, go ahead. You're going to interject. No, it's just funny. As you said that I, no, I, I was just going to say, uh, as you're speaking, I, I, when you said that, I was actually thinking uh, Stick Plissken could easily fit in this movie. Like, there's, the, the, I mean, yes, maybe some of Snake's, you know, attitude and things like that might uh, might be a little bit different, but I don't think that he feels that far away from the characters in this movie. And, uh, you know, I hadn't even really thought about it in terms of, of you know, carpenter's other work you know uh, we we've we've talked about uh this movie before we've talked about escape from new york we've uh we've, we've talked quite a bit i think about uh kurt russell i guess we're probably going to talk about him a little bit more uh as we go but i'm just kind of you know i was caught off guard when you said that and, and as soon as you did i was like oh yeah absolutely like that that certainly does feel like this is the seeds for escape from new york and i I don't know why my brain had just dissected the two, why I wasn't focusing on the fact that these two movies are very, in a lot of their, uh, not only also uh, their look at authority and, and the way things are, are, are presented. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess big trouble. I almost said big trouble in little China. Oh my God. Escape from New York. Much more distant future. Opposed to the uh, times people were living in in the seventies, but uh, they're they're certainly kindred spirits. I'll say that. Yeah, and I, I think like you know, just especially when we have a uh, bishop like trying to be like, oh, somebody's coming to help. Somebody's coming to help. That that can be echoed in um, with um, uh, Donald Pleasant's uh, president's character, right? Escape from New York of like, well, somebody has to do something. Like you know. Like, it's just the whole thing of like, maybe not, like maybe we're on our own. And in this case, like this, this is what happened. And I, um, yeah, like I, this setup is really unique and interesting. And so, um, I want to point out, so like, so yeah, so to, to, to wrap it up, we had the prisoner convoy ending up at this, 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 um, the police station is about to close. Um, we have uh, Bishop supposedly doing like, um, a skeleton crew. That's supposed to be a quiet night. We're going to find out that's wrong. Then we have the father running for his life, but he's also kind of a state of uh, uh, like shock. Very similar to Barbara from Night of the Living Dead, where he's incapable of speaking <laughs> like ever again once he gets to the police station. And then we have Street Thunder closing in and swarming. They're almost they're almost like um, they're not faceless, but they are um, amorphous, and we don't know like their intent other than they've uh, decided to take a, you know, a whole bowl of blood and break it and say, Hey, here, here um, you've marked for, you're marked for death. Right. I think I, I wish that it had been a little bit more clear, but at least we get um, at least we get uh, Tony Burton's character or Wells to explain it. So it made more sense later. So that it helped. But anyway, so we get this uh, police station under like siege. So we get all that. Um, so let me, let me point out to you. Um, the one of the, the, the film that uh, uh, Carpenter digs a lot is Rio Bravo, which is, is from uh, 1959. It's John Wayne. It's a Howard Hawks film, which we know. I think Howard Hawks also directed a thing from another world. Um, 
but it has uh, John Wayne, it has Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson. Uh, and, uh, John Wayne plays a character named John T. Chance, who is a sheriff of a small town. Uh, there's an asshole that is uh, causing problems, so he ends up throwing him in the local jail, but this guy's connected. And what happens over the course of the movie is that because John Wayne's character is like, you're going to face justice for what you did, this guy is connected in the town. There's money, and slowly but surely, there is a contingent being built like that's going to eventually challenge him as sheriff. And the only safe position is the, the sheriff's office with um, the jail cell. Right. So, so in terms of the, the uh, saw precinct 13, isn't a like, you know, it isn't like a remake of Rio Bravo, but it's this guy who is standing on principle. That's like, this is where, this is what justice is. And you, we need to defend it because if we don't, then there's no point to it. So, I think that's important to point out. Um, so, uh, so yeah, when we get to the actual assault here with all the gunfire in this police station, um, you can't convince me the way that this thing looks, the way it's shot up, doesn't look like um, the middle of nowhere, uh, like you know, um, midwestern, like Midwest prison, right? The way that all the all the everything once get once goes things go crazy, it looks like this thing belongs, like you know, in like the eighteen nineties. I just the the sequence once once all hell breaks loose at like the forty five minute mark, it it feels like it really belongs in that time, and I thought that was amazing. Okay, I I did I was not uh, I, I I did not get that connection, but also to be fair, uh, I know that you are far more enamored with the uh, the western. Well, but did you um, see like how pale then, brown like and the way the stucco was and how everything got shut up? It looked like almost like Adobe. It looked like it looked like these older buildings, right, in the interior of the office. It looks like it was shot up, like like uh, I don't know, like that. That's the vibe I got, and I'm sure that's what they were going for. That's all I was just trying to point out. Okay, yeah, uh, an Alamo feel. Yeah, because it's Will? because because even is, is that yeah with that with, is with that, that too much on the nose. Or? No, because Carpenter called his script the Anderson Alamo. So you're right. That's the vibe it was going for. And I can't believe the movie ended with them finding that bicycle in the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah and Napoleon Wilson just rides off. <laughs> paging Mister Wilson, paging Mister Wilson. You know, whatever. No. Um, no, but it's like even with with um, with Rio Bravo, there was like the the like you know like there was some opposing forces that had to band together for the greater good. Um, like uh, D. Martin's character, who was one of the like uh, deputies, that he's not a bad guy in that film, but he's an alcoholic, so he's like questionable, and he was trying to stay straight during all of that. It's like you know, it's not the it's not the same connection as like Napoleon Wilson, right? But like you get like you don't know if this guy's going to turn because he might have a, a fractured character, um, so you get some of that, right? So, um, but I love I love the idea that these two prisoners, like him and then Wells, are like. I don't know what's going on, but these guys are trying to kill us and you're not killing me. So I'll try to kill those guys. I, that's a really, really cool idea. And I don't know how often we see that. I think that like I, that, that relationship between the people in the station when shit's turning sideways is really fascinating to me. I do like, you know, so I, I, I'm going to go back. I, I do like that. The, uh, all the characters have 
their own kind of perspective, I think, on this. Uh, you know, obviously, Stoker is just there trying to, you know, get through the night, basically. And I guess at one point they're all going to do that. But, you know, um, Julie is very like, uh, and that's Nancy Loomis's character. Uh, you know, she's very skeptical of it. She's the, the telephone operator. Um, and I think she's, she's the one who kind of starts losing it the most first you, you've got, you know, uh, uh, Starker who's played by Charles Cyphers, uh, you know, as, uh, a guy who is just trying to transport prisoners and has to make a stop. Although to be fair, he kind of muscles his way in. He's like, we got a sick guy and we don't know if it could be contagious. And I'm like, that sick guy wasn't, he was still contagious before he got on the bus. So, um, <laughs> fair enough. It's a little late to be uh, worrying about it now. Just get him to where he needs to go. Uh, but he's a little pushy about it too. Cause you know, Stoker even says to him like, uh, Hey, uh, there, we have no staff here. There's nothing here. Like uh, this place is being shuttered and he's like, why well, I, well, I can't use your holding cells. And like, you know, it, it's just, it's funny because it, it, well, not funny, but ironic in the sense of the story, uh, because you know, it just, it, it adds into that confluence of events that you're talking about. But, um, you know, that certainly costs him his life cause he gets gunned down pretty hard. Uh, spoilers uh, <laughs> yeah, later the, on, but like, he, you, uh, you feel yeah. like he's going to be a major player for the whole movie, right? He's not like, it's just, yeah, th- this movie does. It does not. Um, it's very like, Oh, do you think you know how these are going to go? Nope. <laughs> like a lot of people disappear, <laughs> like, but it also feels very matter of fact to me. Cause like, like the gunfire in this, um, it's all silencers, which we know that those the realistically, that isn't the way those really work. But, um, like we get a lot of those psycho moments of like, Oh, does this, the characters going to stick around? Nah. But also how, how quickly people die to gunshots feels very appropriate. That feels mm-hmm. realistic. Like the, uh, the one officer that was there that went outside that wasn't uh Bishop. <laughs> how, oh how, God. Yeah. <laughs> he, how he just got popped. And then, uh, what's her name was like, Oh, he fell down. I'm like, he didn't fall down, honey. Like, <laughs> no, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I just, how, how realistic, like if you get tagged anywhere in your midsection, you're pretty much gone. It was also kind of refreshing. There wasn't that whole, like I'm getting shot seven times, but I'm getting up and walking again. The one character that actually got uh, dinged by a bullet. um, Oh, uh, what was her name? It was, um, um, it was uh, uh, Lee, uh, Laurie Zimmer, how she gets clipped in the arm and how the rest of the movie, she's like, I can't move it. That's the right reaction. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, cause they, they're trying to come up with plans at one point. And I think they look at her and she's like, yeah, right arm or something like that. And she's like, <laughs> I'm shot in the arm. I'm, I'm basically can't do what you're asking me to do. Uh, yeah, they do that do that a couple of times. I, I, I wanted to mention, you know, uh, in that regard, like, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's just being clever. I think it's a really funny line. Um, and this just speaks to uh, the way that uh, Carpenter characters. But uh, earlier in the film, uh, I think it's Lee who's being uh, how he likes coffee. And she's like, I've been black for like 30 years. 
He says something along those lines. Yeah. And it's so, like, you know, matter-of-fact, it's sort of just, uh, you know, cutting the, the tension of uh, him him being uh, surrounded in a, a empty, you know, precinct by a bunch of white people. I, th- I thought it was a really funny line, but I thought it was also a nice... Yeah, acknowledgement to uh, at least some of the tension that's building within the film. Well, I even um, like too whatever. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, please. No, go ahead. Oh, no, go just, ahead. No, this is a bit too when she was like talking about how like he mentioned he was brought to this actual um, precinct house when he was younger because his dad brought him there because of foul language, and we see we hear that he carved something to a desk. We never see what he said in the desk, right? But they look at the whatever, and she's like, "Oh, well, I'm glad you were taken out of this." before he's like, no, 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 no. I walked out when I was like 19 or 20. I forget what he said the actual year. He wanted to let her know. He's like, this is where I grew up. I actively chose to get out and do something different. It wasn't that I was being saved. I think that was important too. Yeah. And I, I, I'm ashamed of myself now because, uh, you just made a very good point and it's one that I hadn't even considered. Uh, cause that's a, I normally like that that sort of double edged uh, dialogue. I'm really, I'm I'm both uh you know, uh, impressed by your 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 uh, bringing it up, but also disappointed in myself for not catching it. I do think that that's a really, not only smart writing choice, but also a a, a good strong character beat that plays into the rest of the film. Yeah, but well, because it's like he he, it's like he's trying to acknowledge like listen. I know I grew up in like a bad neighborhood and there was a lot of shit going on, but he's like, but I lived here. It wasn't like I left early and like, you know, it's just like, like, um, like when you talked about last week about watching the, the updated Bel Air like thing, it's like, there's an acknowledgement of like, I've come from someplace then, uh, because I know where I've come from, this informs how I'm going to be. And I think it's important to his character. It's a small beat. Right. And then, but also like, uh, I think Bishop is a man of principle and a man of character. And, and even though like he grew up in a crumbling, like, you know, uh, inner city, like he still like wants to do the greater good. And like, um, like I have, I can, I, can I, I just want to point out the visual things going on in this film. Whenever he comes, like there's a bit when the butt, the, the, the bus with, um, the comic books are pulling up. He has a side. He's just hammering into the front. Like it's a yard sale sign saying, Hey, uh, precinct has moved. <laughs> to this thing and you see him as he's hammering the sign in it's like he's just still trying to be like yeah i want to get in front of this because people might come in for help we can't do anything all it's just me uh one other cop that's mad at me for reasons i don't understand um a secretary and a phone operator and we have a box that's locked with a shotgun in it that's all we have Like, I don't know. I just, I like that he was trying, I I think he was trying to get in front of it. Like, and I, I just, I like Bishop's character. Like, um, I I was watching the special features on the shot factory, uh, um, Blu-ray of this. And they asked, they asked Carpenter, like there's a Q and a like 2002 is like, like, was this a political film? He was like, he was like, it was apolitical. He's like, if you do anything that's like political, he's like, basically he's like, my goal is to be entertaining. And I think, I think that's fair and you can still have a message, which I mean, you know, we're going to like Carpenter has messages and, and somebody eventually asked about, they live. And he was like, yeah, I was pissed off with the Reagan years. And he's like, I couldn't take it anymore. We'll get there with this. It's like, he, he says it's apolitical. Um, I don't know. He's like, I don't know if I agree with that completely. Clearly he's the person that wrote it. He's the person that shot it and he has his opinions. 
I think purposely picking a uh, a character of color to be a lieutenant here dealing with this, um, you can draw the parallels to Night Living Dead, which you should. I think that's fair to have a, a, a you know an African American lead, but also having like a man of a uh, principle and a man of like you know character be the lead in the face of like this. Um, you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, I think is very important. But there's also the comment um, earlier where the one guy's leaving that the, um, the precinct, he's like, Oh, Oh, I guess they wanted to make sure you had a really great uh, assignment for your fight night out. Doesn't that feel like that's kind of a loaded statement. That's kind of like, we're going to give you um, janitor work because we don't value you with your promotion. Is that the vibe? That's the vibe I got with it. Oh yeah, yeah, I got it. Like it was a shit job that he was getting. Not, not that this was being some some honor being bestowed on him doing it. So, yeah, I kind of I kind of uh, that way myself. But did it feel um, did it feel like kind of racially motivated? And, it's like we're, uh, yeah. we're going to give this guy the Apologies. shit job. We're going to give him the shit job because we don't value him in his position that he's in. That's the vibe I got. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's it. I know that it's. Okay, so it's it's implied, but I don't know that it's. I'm still trying to deal with the, the whole, whole, you know, Carpenter being a political thing. Like I, I, I understand where he's coming from there, and I certainly know that yes, his films are entertaining, but I, I think he's got a little bit more of a political view to his films that he's giving himself either credit for or willing to allow. Oh, to enter the conversation. I, I think that um, a lot of his views are very front and center. I mean, you mentioned they live, obviously, you know, we're going to be covering that. So we, I don't want to go into too, too deep here, but like that is, that is, uh, I think Carpenter at its most uh, uh, biting when it comes to. Yeah. His commentary. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. But I, I, I feel like he's, yeah, his commentary. I, I certainly feel like that's a thread through all of his films. I, I don't think it's uh, it's certainly a, a, a conversation that applies here, but it, it applies to his entire career, in my opinion. To be fair, though, I know he made an Elvis movie, so I didn't see that. So, uh, maybe, <laughs> oh, maybe I'm wrong. It's it's completely that it, there's so much pol- politics in that, and also in Memoirs of Invisible Man, you can't believe it. No, I'm kidding. Um, so now, um, so like I I want to point that. Out. I also want to point out um, when we get to um, when we get to the character of Lee with Laurie Zimmer, how how like downplaying like how like she is so somber, and I I just. I wasn't expecting because I feel like it would be easy to lean into the stereotype of like um, the damsel in distress, which we get with Julie, uh, Nancy Key, Nancy Keys or Nancy Loomis, um, how she gets a little bit more exaggerated. Um, but when we get to Lee, how she is just like, all right, this is going on. And then like she, when she gets like nicked and her arm hurts, she's like, yeah, well, guess I got to shoot people. <laughs> And like, and how, like, I just, I love, I love, 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 love at the end, whenever the police show up and they're like, we have a stretcher for you. And she's like, "Mm," and just walks away. My God, Uh, Lee is such a strong character. Like I like, especially for this time and place, I wasn't expecting that either. And I, I thought that was great. I think that, and again, uh, we'll talk about this uh, a lot probably next month as well. I think that Carpenter 
uh, is very much at the front of, well, I should say the forefront, but like he's certainly somebody who uh, did not have a and I don't mean to use it in the derogatory term in the, the shitty way that he's now, but the strong female character, I mean, like, he was he was not somebody who shied away from that. We'll put it that way. Um, and I think that we see that throughout uh, uh, some of his other films as well. Uh, I, I guess I guess in the sense of, of, you know, trying to probably keep it as realistic as he could in the sense of, you know, the 70s being dark and gritty and, and have that that gray and everything. Uh, I think that that's probably also that he wanted to show that, you know, this this person isn't just the damsel in distress or the, uh, uh, well, there's clearly no, like, uh, you know, love uh, interest set up here uh, in that sense. I mean, it's implied but that's between kind of her. gotten these movies at that time. It's implied between her and Napoleon that there's a tension, right? Like they have, they're vibing. You get that a little bit, but I think on um, the character of the father, I think his name was Lawson. Is that his name with him taking kind of like the Barbara role, like in terms of night of living dead, it's great that we didn't have like the, like pan- like we, we got a little bit of the panicked female like character, um, you know, from, um, uh, I keep, I forget. I'm sorry. I, um, it's Julie. from, uh, from Julie, right? We get a little bit of her where she's like, yeah, we get like this guy, this guy showed up. We got to just throw him out. Um, yeah, we get that. But at, at the same time, it's like, it like um don't like I'm gonna throw this out to you too. There's a little bit of like a demonite vibe from this, where you have like this outside siege and then like you have that conflict internal. Because I know we talked about demonite a long time ago, where everyone's like, let's just give them what they want and they'll go away. It's like, I don't know if that's it's gonna work out the right way for everybody, right? So you always have to have that that um that a um logic like logical in the sense of like this is the end of the solution, but it's like, that's also not the most humane thing to do. So I'm not going to throw that at her where like, like they, they, she had to do the work of being that character, but I don't think that, um, like you could have easily like diminished the role of the women in this film and it did not happen. And I thought that was great. I also liked that both when we got to Wells and, um, uh, Napoleon, that um, they didn't, they didn't devolve into we're criminals. We're gonna do criminal things right now. You know, like like Wells. I like that his one his one goal was like, hey guys, I have an idea. It's called Operation Save Ass, meaning I'm gonna leave. <laughs> I thought that was like, here he's like, I have a gun. I'm gonna get out of here. But it wasn't like he like you know we you mentioned Connor earlier. It wasn't like they're like, oh no, we let the convicts loose. They're gonna be the worst people ever. Like there's a humanity to the interactions there that was also refreshing and surprising that I liked a lot. I think that that's also part of uh, maybe Carpenter's outlook in the sense of people being people and not being cartoons. Um, I can't help but think of his other films and it's hard you know this is his second film you know and i keep wanting to talk about other films that come later in the sense of how i can see this probably informed those but you know uh nada in uh in they live is uh he's 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 a guy there's something that's happened in his past you kind of get a feeling for a lot of the people that are in that that area 
uh, where he ends up at camp. Uh, you know, people who have either fallen on hard times, but also might be there because of the fact that they might have been part of a criminal element at one point or trying to reform or maybe even recover. I, I think that he at least approaches it from a more realistic point of view as opposed to just being able to equally color somebody good or bad. That's fair. I, I see the same thing with like, what was it Harry Dean Sands character in like Escape from New York? Um, like also even the thing, how like they're all at the, the, the station, but like, you know, there's varying levels of trust. Like, yeah, I think there, I think there's something there where it's like, once you, once you realize like there's this external threat, like you got, you got to work together. Right. And, um, yeah, I just, there's a lot here that I dig. And, um, I just, I think it's also speaking to like, um, like, like, uh, the time and place of like, uh, the collapse of, uh, cause, cause Bishop says repeatedly, he's like, we're in the city. How are people responding? I think that also speaks to a big thing too, because even though this is shot and made it look like it is a, um, a, uh, station in the middle of nowhere. Um, he's like, this is, this is Los Angeles. How are people not showing up? I think that's a big thing too, talking about like the apathy towards like, um, like violence. And also there's the whole, like, I got to protect mine. I think there's a lot there too. There's a distrust of like the people who are going to do the right thing. Um, yeah, there's, a, I think there's a lot to chew on this as much as Carpenter says this film isn't uh, political. I think there's a lot there, but let, let's get into, um, the, um, this has this shares DNA with a uh, night of the living dead, not just because there's a, um, an African-American lead, but also like, um, the, um, like there isn't a, we don't really get to know street thunder other than they come up and they throw blood and they put a flag down and whatever. And they put like a death curse or whatever it is on the, the precinct, but the way that they just kind of come in waves and how it's like unknown and unexpected and how they're kind of, they're, they're not faceless, but they're, um, how do I describe it? It, it blurs together because the number of people involved that that part of it, like the siege of the police station feels very much like um, night of the living dead. And then even the last bit where they're in the basement and they have the sign, which I do like that. It was like, um, it was a partial sign that was like, um, like contact your local police or whatever. The sign, the sign was like half of a statement of like, we're here to help you. And you have all these guys rushing at um, Bishop and uh, Wilson Napoleon Wilson, right? And how they're fighting everybody, everybody back. You can't convince me that's not in a zombie assault. That was very effective. And that feels very much in line with the last stand of what we know from Romero. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of comparisons that could be made to dead. Uh, looking at this movie. I, I don't want to say, you know, because I, I initially, you know, when I'm saying that, I was looking at the trivia and I was like, oh, you know, uh, it started to click. And I think that it extends beyond. <sighs> I'm not making sense here. So I think it extends beyond uh, it just being a zombie horde. But I feel like influence is certainly it's. It's interpreting the the way that he's portraying it, but it also it's not like a direct homage or anything like that. It's not something that I initially 
like walked away from it. I was like, oh, this is definitely not Living Dead. But it's it is easier to once you put it through that lens of of if you find out that he's viewing the the in those terms of the zombies. Uh, I think that makes that that uh, uh, that comparison easier, but also it's easier to see how I, I think that the the idea of being stuck in one location with you know being and it's not like Romero invented that you know uh, uh, one location you know uh, horror film or uh, story convention, but like it, it is interesting. You know, I think that it goes beyond just it being the zombies as opposed to like it feels like it's it's throughout the film more than than actually being uh, being. Oh, I I just thought of it for the zombies. Like it, it feels far more integral. We'll put it that way. Well, that's that's fair. But in terms of like um like again, I was listening to the Q and A from 2002, and someone was asking about Romero, and he was like, "He's like, yeah, he's like, anybody that's an independent filmmaker, you can't tell me they're not influenced by that film." So Carpenter was like, "Yeah, I see it." Like, and he agreed with it. So, like, I think there's something to be said there. I think um, the whole notion too that like you know, like help may arrive, but it may be too late. Like, especially there's the direness of when we find out after like the repeated, like couple sieges where it's like, you know, they only have a few shots in both, like all the guns. Right. And there was the bit of like, uh, whenever, um, when they're in the basement and, um, it was, uh, it, what was it? Um, I'm sorry. It was, uh, the character of, I keep Lee where she's like, well, what do I do after my, my two or three shots? And Napoleon's like, do what you can. <laughs> You know, it's like, I don't know, turn your gun around, start beating people. I got nothing. You know, like there was something there that felt very desperate about it. Cause the way that street thunder was presented was like, it doesn't matter the cost we're going to get you. Right. And I, that feels very similar to that. And it also, I think that kind of still feels like there's this vibe of like you know, the sixties and seventies of like, it's not going to end well, which with this film, um, I gotta say, I wasn't expecting, like I did, I really, 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 really liked whenever we got to the end, one, uh, Lee walks out on her own, which I mentioned, but we also had, uh, uh, Bishop and, uh, Napoleon Wilson when Wilson was about to be grabbed by another police officer, uh, Bishop was like, no, no. And he looked at, he looked at, uh, Wilson, he was like, I would like to walk out with you. And he was like, yeah, I figured or whatever he said. It's like, I'm going to give you the respect because you did this. Cause, cause even Napoleon was like, you don't run away from two things like a fight. And then it was implied of like someone that you love or let you like. And he was talking to, you know, uh, to Lee about that. And he had his own code of honor. He's like, I'm in it. I'm in it to the end. And I like that whenever they're like, we're going to walk out together, which still implies that, you know, uh, Napoleon's still going to be shackled up and taken to death row. But we got the notion that Bishop was like, I respect you as a man. And as long as you're near me, I'm not going to put you in handcuffs. I really, really liked that. I thought that was as much, as much as you could have a happy ending with the carnage and everything going on. And a poor girl just getting obliterated at an ice cream stand. This is a more, um, hopeful ending personality wise than I think we get with some of Carpenter's films later. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's optimistic, but it, it, it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess a happier ending than some of the the, the films that we're going to get uh, coming up. I, I, I don't know. I think that uh, the way the film ends is a. Uh, uh, it's it's very much a. Uh, walking off into the sunset moment you know it's it's very much a uh, that felt like a western to me i guess i'll put it that way like and that's me going off a preconceived notion of what i think westerns westerns are but i i you know the walking off into the sunset maybe the uh i almost said butch and sundance but that's not how that movie ends uh the um (laughs) no you know that that feeling of like We've been through shit, and we're walking out of this together. Well, I'd even argue that it feels a lot like um, uh, the outlaw Josie Wales, which I know you've not seen, where his character looks like he's fatally shot, but like the 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 law that's there, it's like like you know, like he's like I'm gonna go, uh, like basically I'm gonna go this way, and they're like, okay, well we're not gonna go chasing you, where it's like basically we're gonna let you die on your own terms. You know, like, and I'm not saying that of these two characters, but it's like, it's still not a good ending. Right. But at least you get like the mutual respect between the, the two, the two main characters. And yeah, I, I thought that was really cool. Like I, I dug it. Like, and I also want to point out too, that I feel like the final bit was a little anticlimactic versus like the middle of the movie with every gunshot ever. But that also speaks to like, um, reality doesn't follow a three act, like, you know, script. Like I, um, you know, like it, it's just, th- this was a cool movie. I cannot wait to watch it again. Um, uh, I'm glad that I own it, but there's a lot here to chew on. And, and the, the jump, like it is a, uh, like, uh, the, um, it's, you know, to use the term a quantum leap. Uh, it is like, it is a massive leap forward versus dark star in terms of uh presentation story a uh, character and everything. it's like 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 how like you talk about like how can somebody be so good at cul- uh, like multiple things can can you tell me um is there another person that you like that um there is so much of a complete and a trackable like quality shift between a first and second effort I don't know. Um, I would say that, you know, uh, Kevin Smith with uh, clerks to 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 um, mall rats. There is really a uh, evolution there. No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, I know you're kidding, but that's not I, mean, I, I love Kevin Smith. Don't get me wrong. I, I was just trying to make a joke. I, I, I know what you're saying, though. I, I agree with you. I, 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 there is a seismic jump there. Um, but also, I, I think that uh, it's a lean movie. Like, it really moves. Like, I don't feel like anything that's in the movie is either uh, wasting my time or feels like filler. Like, the movie moves. Like, I never felt like it never felt slow to me, which, you know, for films of this period, that can be something that happens is, is that, you know, those movies can tend to be a little bit slower. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I don't mean that that's a, you know, a bad thing for a film to be slower, but I think that the way this movie moves and, and, and tells its story, like, yes, the, 
the climax is a little bit more lackluster to compared to its second act, but still overall, like it, the movie moves, uh, like I, it felt like I was done with it like in 45 minutes. Like, I don't know why, like it was like, Oh, I'm already at the end of this. Oh, wow. I, I was actually surprised with how quickly it felt like it moved. Um, I think that Carpenter, uh, is certainly like, I can see seeing this movie and, and being like, you know, Avi Arad, uh, Avi Arad, my apologies. Mustafa <laughs> Akkad, Jesus Christ. I can't believe I, I just, Avi Arad, uh, I'm going down in like, uh, boy, hell now for, uh, uh, saying that. But, uh, Mustafa Akkad saying like, uh, you're going to make a movie for $300,000 about, you know, killer. I don't know how you do this movie, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody being like, here's assault on precinct, precinct 13 and telling him what the budget is. I see how, how you get to Halloween from here. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it completely makes sense. Um, and I guess we'll talk about that when we talk about Halloween, but, uh, for a second film, it's a huge leap, but it's also a really good second film. Like I, I don't know. I, I I don't know if that answers your question or if I've just rambled. Well, no, 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 again, no. It but, didn't. It uh, no, no. Like, so how do you go from um, like James Cameron from Piranha to the spawning to the Terminator? Right. Like there, there's that jump there too, which I've not seen Piranha to. I think I'm okay. Uh, and even like you mentioned, Robert Rodriguez, like he did El Mariachi, and then he did like a TV movie called Road Racers, which whatever. But then he went to do Desperado, like. I, th- I think there's that kind of same that same kind of DNA of like, oh my god, like you you just jumped right, and I think this was clear with this too. Like I think I think you and I both walked away from Dark Star enjoying it, but it was like you know it felt like a student film because it was. This feels like um, like a film film. I, I don't know how to quantify it. I feel like it's a complete product. Um, uh, listening to the commentary of the Carpenter, he. He keeps saying repeatedly, one, the goal of um, um, sh- like small budget films is uh, like shoot very little but extend scenes. <laughs> Basically meaning like, <laughs> you know, stretch, stretch, stretch. And there's the bit in the beginning whenever um, Stoker's character leaves his house and gets into the car and starts up and drives away. He was like, yeah, this went on too long. I didn't think it did. You know, like, I think it just kind of gave him, like, like he got a moment to get to the character. And he said that, like, now, and he said this in 2002, he's like, I, he's like, I would have sped the first half of this movie up. But he was also saying that that's kind of how movies were at the time, but also they're like, you kind of kind of let things breathe. Like, he kept, like, shitting on himself about, like, yeah, I would have done this differently. But, you know, you know, what, just in terms of, like, if this is, like, your second project and, you're like, we already talked about this before about using like, you know, like you're using, uh, the film stock and the production, like the, the finishing facilities that are used for like films that are way above, like you're punching way above your weight class. I just, my gosh, this film, like, I like the first 45 minutes that it builds everything. Right. I like that. It gives you, cause it's, it's a perfect break. Like I, I, I don't know about you, but, um, um, I understand that movies have to well, go from, sorry, go ahead, please, please continue. No, no. I, and again, I, I don't want to go further down the line in his filmography, but I would say that, you know, if you were to cut out the first five minutes of Halloween, which is the instigating event, you know, 
you got a solid 45 minutes of building characters, you know, which is important. I don't think that's that far removed from what he did here. And I certainly didn't feel like, oh, this movie needs to get going. You know, I'm not getting <laughs> enough action out of this or this isn't going where it needs to go fast enough. Like, I, I certainly don't get that here. And I think that it's important to build that character. And I think that uh, I, I'll, I'll disagree with him. I think that he 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 would be doing a disservice to himself to to do it, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a different way, I guess. Yeah, because I also feel like just anytime we do anything, you go back. Like, I'm sure if I could, like, you know, if I ever listen to anything I ever said, like, ah, why did I say that? You know, whatever. Um, you know, like, we're our harshest critics. I think that the deliberate pacing of this serves the second half of the movie. And I think that's very successful. Um, and I, yeah, I dig it. So, so yeah, I think, um, like, you. <laughs> If you, if like, basically, if you want to say I belong amongst everybody, this is the film to do it. So now, so now saying that it didn't do well when it was originally, you know, distributed here in the U.S. It, it, it traveled the festival circus, uh, cir- circuit, circus, um, Steve, circus penis. I'm just kidding. That's a callback to an earlier episode. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> circus penis. No, it, it actually ended up over in Europe and it actually did quite well over there because I think like, it's weird how like, and also during the Q and I was watching someone asked him is like, why is it that here in the U S that you're considered above average, but like over in France, like here and like an author and artist. And he, <laughs> what he said was they're both wrong is what he said. And I thought that was a great answer. He's like, he's like, he's like, I'm a bum here. And like, <laughs> You know, and it's like, he's like, I don't know why France is all, but he's like, they're both wrong. I just, he is the most humble son of a bitch. <laughs> um, it's also very similar what happened with Hitchcock where like the, like there was a lot of French uh, reviewers that really latched onto what he was about and other people didn't understand. So, um, so this actually caught fire over in Europe. It actually did quite well. And then it, it eventually came back and it became successful, which unfortunately becomes kind of a pattern for Carpenter where it gets released and people don't quite get it. And it takes time. And then when like, everyone's like, Oh shit, I get it now. I'm sure he's like, yeah, that doesn't pay me. That doesn't give me, that doesn't help me, but it's become a pattern in this film. You know, and we even see it in the smaller form with dark star where it actually played well. in like the student circuit, it never caught fire like mainstream. So I think it's important to point out that like, you know, when this came out, it didn't perform well here, but it eventually caught fire and it actually eventually, you know, um, you know, got like notoriety. So I think that's important to note. Um, but also I, I meant to mention this. I, let me pull back for a second. Um, I wanted to mention this to you, Steve. And cause I, I, I teased this earlier, the film Rio Bravo, um, American made Western, uh, like talking about people having to stand off in a prison. There's a bit in that where uh, while they're waiting it out, um, there's people that are like collecting around outside. Um, they, they, they're eventually going to lay siege to this prison. And there is um, a, a piece of music that plays called uh, El Duego, uh, which is uh, translates to the cutthroat song. That is, um, it's a Spanish piece of music. It's a Mexican piece of music that, um, it actually was the precursor to um, the soundtracks to Spaghetti Westerns because it inspired that. What I want to point out, and I, I kind of I mentioned this to you while before we start recording, that like 
uh, Rio Bravo not only inspired Carpenter, but the El Duego bit inspired Spaghetti Westerns with all the amazing scoring that we get with uh, Ennio Morricone and other people that I can't remember right now. Um, Carpenter's scoring of Assault of Precinct 13, which is an homage to Rio Bravo, would go on to influence so many other people in terms of 80 cent scores. I think that's an interesting mirroring. So I wanted to bring that to you before we wrapped up the conversation. Oh, that's that, that is interesting. You know, I know that you, uh, do much more of a deep dive, particularly like music wise. I know that like you were, uh, you like a lot of, uh, instrumental might be the better way of putting it, but like, uh, not just synth, I guess. Is I, I don't want to be like, oh, you're you love that that uh, style, but like you like a lot of instrumental stuff. Uh, you've you've talked about like uh, maybe not on the show, but off off uh, off. <laughs> I always say off air, like we're on the radio well, I right mean, now. How else you want um, to coming it? up next? Yeah. Yeah, coming up next. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> top 20 of 20 weather on the eights burr, burr, burr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um <laughs> uh, i shit i forgot where i was going with my no no in terms here. of um, like i do like a lot i do like a lot of instrumental pieces i like a, a lot of soundtrack work yes absolutely yeah so uh you know i don't i don't know that i uh I don't know that it would have made that connection. I don't know that the, uh, you know, I, I, that's a cool, uh, cool little fact, I guess, but I don't know that I would have ever came to that, uh, on my own. Um, uh, I don't know. It's an interesting little fact. And I feel like I just, uh, stumbled all over my, uh, well, like no, I was going to like, say something and now I'm like, no, but we're ah. talking about like carpenter so. synth scores, right? You talk about like, I mean, I know Halloween is like piano and, and other things, but like, you can't say that, especially right now with all the, like the, like that weird revival nostalgia for the eighties, how a lot of the scores that show up, you can't tell me that they're not like paying homage to Carpenter because I think he put it out there. Right. So I think that it's important to say that he shaped the sound of a lot of eighties films. Um, so much in the way that Rio Bravo inadvertently shaped a lot of the late sixties and seventies spaghetti Westerns. So that's all I was just trying to mirror is that like a thing that actually did, they didn't know that what they were like, meaning it was important for the film at the time it would reverberate and become really, really interesting and cool for me, especially Enio Morricone and to wrap up like to, to wrap that in a bow when we get to the thing, which we will talk about. Carpenter didn't want to do a synth score and he went to Morricone and he was like, Hey, do a score for me. And Morricone is like, I like your synth work. I'm giving you synth. Like Morricone was like, you know, the, 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 the God of spaghetti Westerns. And he was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you a synth score for, <laughs> for the thing. It all kind of dovetails together. So I think that was important to point out. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I certainly, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't disagree. I guess, uh, you know, uh, when, when you were talking about it being, uh, reoccurring now in today's, you know, like, Oh, every remember the eighties or, you know, we love the eighties kind of stuff. You know, I do think, uh, when stranger things was promoting itself, uh, the two, the Duffer brothers, I think who are the guys behind it, Yes. you know, uh, I think a, and actually, it may not even be them who said that, but like, there was a lot of like, oh, it's Stephen King meets Steven Spielberg, you know. And I'm like, 
I almost swore, but <laughs> F you, it's a lot of John Carpenter. Like, <laughs> I got, you know, yes, I got Stephen King vibes for sure, and I got, you know, uh, Spielberg vibes. I get it. You're dealing with children, blah, blah, blah. But, like, like, I'm getting a healthy chunk of John Carpenter here as well. I don't think that you can have that conversation about Stranger Things without talking about John Carpenter films. So, um, at yeah. least in some way for how that show is influenced. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's the, the best way that I can put it in. Uh, cause I, I, I hate to admit, I don't think in, in those terms, but you are, I, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I mean, I just, uh, I hadn't really considered that, that, um, when it comes to the scoring versus, uh, you know, it, it winding up with the spaghetti Western. Well, I mean, like, like, why would you? It's why or the Western. Out. No, I'm just saying like, cause I just wanted to, I wanted to draw a line between, um, Rio Bravo and like his love of it. And, and not that he, not, and not that he made a score for assault precinct 13, precinct 13 to, to mirror anything from, from that. Cause he didn't. It's just that I think it's interesting that, this like his, his his own music uh the choices would go on to inspire an entire like genre of films where Rio Bravo would go on to inspire the music to inspire a bunch of different films like i think it's a parallel it it's not intended i just thought wanted to point it out that's all like i'm not i wasn't expecting to be like you know oh my gosh paul you solve the world you know <laughs> But I thought that was worthy of mentioning, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Like just because if that's your favorite film and you're inspired by it and then you, you pick like, cause like, cause, um, oh, what was it? Uh, Carpenter said that he was inspired for his scoring for Assault and Precinct 13 by the Immigrant Song and the score to Dirty Harry, which is all like, I forgot to even mention that in terms of like, you know, contemporary films. He wasn't thinking about Rio Bravo. What I'm saying is that his music inspires a certain genre of filmmaking, but one of his favorite films inspired music for a certain genre of filmmaking. I just thought that was worthy of note. That's the only reason I want to bring it to you and anybody else listening. That's all. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I certainly didn't want to, uh, bring it to that end of the conversation. <laughs> I just, sometimes I, I, <laughs> uh, I didn't know how to respond to that or what to say. So, uh, yeah, um, that's awesome. Um, I, I that probably should, how I should have responded. To them. <laughs> so, okay. So to it's wrap a it up, weird show tonight, eh, whatever it's, it's the year of carpenter. That's what we're going to do versus the year of the carpenters, which we won't do. Um, so, um, my first time watching this, your first time watching this, uh, did you like this movie? Oh, I did. I, I liked it an awful lot. I, uh, I mean, beyond the whole, like, oh, I'm, I'm mad at myself for not watching it sooner. Um, I was actually thinking, you know, I don't know that it fits into Superbro, but I feel like this would make a, you know, a, uh, this would make a, a, a great starter to a, uh, marathon of, uh, you know, action movies or, or even, um, you know, like I, I, I'm not saying you, you put it right there. Like for whatever reason, the first movie that came into my brain was Terminator. Like, I don't know why I'm like, this would be a great double feature with Terminator. But for some reason, that's where my brain went. But I think that, uh, this is a movie that I'm definitely going to be revisiting again. And I also bought the shout factory version. I unfortunately just ran out of time this week and didn't get to do, uh, the research, uh, that Paul did. Um, so I do a thank him for that. Uh, I'm get to, uh, 
But B, I, I, I certainly uh, uh, wasn't able to dig into this as deeply as Paul did. So I'm grateful for that, as I'm sure you all are um, listening. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I plan on watching this again. I'm certainly going to uh, revisit it again before this year is out. And I want to dig into the special features because uh, that was one of the things that I one of the reasons I bought the Blu-ray was I was like, oh, I can I can dip into these special features and and have uh, all this information at the go. And I didn't. So. Okay. Yeah. No, I just I just wanted to bring something to your attention, and also I am um, um, no no just like I don't dismiss it. Like you watch the film, we experienced it, and this is a good thing, and we had a good conversation, and people should watch us all on Precinct Thirteen. I think it's um I, I think it's a great film, and I cannot wait to like get into it again. Like I said, I watched uh, some of the commentary. The Blu-ray I have from Shout Factory has uh, two commentary tracks. One is just John Carpenter. Uh, the other one is uh, Tommy Lee Wallace. Um, I want to get into that more. Uh, there's an individual segments with uh, Austin Stoker. Um, oh, what's, uh, sorry, is that his name? I apologize. Um, it is, oh, yeah, Austin Stoker, which I, in hindsight, I feel bad now that um, I've seen this and it's an amazing film. And I went up to him and I was like, I love Abby. And I'm like, oh, what about this? Like, I'm hoping one time, maybe I'll get to meet him again and be like, can you please sign my steel book of this? Cause like Abby's a lot of fun, but I liked him a lot in this, as this role. Um, no, this film's a lot, a lot of fun and people should watch it. Um, I, I, it's one of those things I'm like, why did I not get to it till now? Like people should watch Assault Precinct 13. I want to check out the remake. I'm not saying because I have high hopes, but I want to see somebody else's approach to the material. I mean, you know, Carpenter's not against like, like doing remakes, right? So why not watch that? This was great. I'm glad I own it. I cannot wait to get into it again. This was a fun movie. People should watch it. Um, just, um, I don't know. Um, don't trust ice cream guys. Cause they might like they might get your order wrong and that might be bad. That's all I gotta say about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, my advice: trust the ice cream guy because uh, you know he was a uh, he was on the up and up. He he even gave uh, your father an item for revenge. I don't know what that means. Yep. We should just end this now. Yep. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for our discussion about Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, let us know your thoughts on it. We have a Facebook page. It's a page of the podcast. We have a, we have a, a website that um, it is uh, dusty, uh, covered in, um, I don't know, uh, the, the many, many bodies. That doesn't make sense. Um, but if you want to go read my thoughts on Rio Bravo, that's there. It's invasionofthepodcast.com. Um, wherever you find your podcast, Rate reviews to be greatly appreciated. Uh, and if you like this conversation, let other people know. The more the merrier. And Steve, how can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Facebook under the Saturday Night Slasher. You can find me on the web uh, under at, at the under the uh, at the Saturday Night Slasher dot com. Uh, and then also uh, our Etsy store is uh, still on vacation. Apparently, we're having a party. Um, so, uh, vacation has been extended. Uh, but, uh, if you want to buy a copy, just reach out to me. But, uh, if you're listening to this in the future, go to our Etsy store, uh, art of the slash. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And good night. All right. That's going to do it for us this week. Everybody have a good week. Have a safe week next week. 
We're going to have a guest on the show. We're going to have an interview. It's been a while since we've done this, uh, but we cannot wait to get to it. It is going to be uh, Justin from the podcast, uh, Tales from the Podcast. Uh, he has a Kickstarter for his uh, book, Tales of Shock and Terror. We're going to have that interview. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about his book. We're going to talk about uh, doing things on Kickstarter, which Steve has some knowledge of. So I'm sure it's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, in the meantime, everybody have a good week. Have a safe week. And I don't know. Again, um, to, to be sure of your ice creams. And I mean, I, I got nothing else other than... Um, Stay away from ice cream trucks and stay away from open windows because that feels like that's going to be a problem as well. The world don't owe me no favors, but it gives me pain and misery.